Hi, this is one of your hosts, Chris, and welcome to a bonus, supersized episode of Something to Say. We had so much fun and had so much positive feedback from you all about episode one of I Want My MTV that our feature guest Aaron Fay agreed to come back for more where we're dedicating an entire episode to it. We're going to continue our discussion on the evolution and history of MTV. When we last left off, we talked about the early days and inception of the channel, including how a member of the band The Monkees helped create the channel, how an executive from Nickelodeon launched the channel, and how even though it was recorded out of New York City, the staff and VJs had to go watch the day one launch from a restaurant basement in New Jersey. In this episode, we're going to talk about how Eddie Van Halen and Mick Jagger saved the channel from bankruptcy and a racial boycott, discuss the top-ranked videos of the 80s, show you the exact moment in time reality TV was invented, and talk about videos and artists ranging from Michael Jackson to Madonna to U2 to Nirvana. We'll also be talking about how MTV evolved to a channel that no longer shows music videos, how its influence bled into the mainstream culture into TV and movies such as Miami Vice, Top Gun, Footloose, and Dirty Dancing. From the Backstreet Boys to Jon Stewart to Jackass, we'll fill you in on the rest of the channel history. We'll even give you bonus first-hand knowledge of the real beginnings of one of the biggest rock stars from the 90s who grew up and worked the same bar as us and our guest Aaron. We've got a ton of other great trivia and behind-the-scenes stories about MTV through the years you're not going to want to miss. So let's jump right back into our show where we last left off. MTV Launch Day, August 1st, 1981. Bit of trivia, what's the second video that played on MTV? That one eludes me. It was Pat Benatar's You Better Run. So here's the problem. You have a a 24-hour-a-day music channel. How long's an average song? Three minutes. How many can you fit in an hour? 20. Okay. 15 kind of commercials. So at the time, they only had access to around 200 videos, and you want to start fresh. You want to have variety. So they start leaning on all the chart-topping bands of the day. One of the first ones they went to was REO Speedwagon. Another one was Rod Stewart. Start churning out videos. Uh, Kevin Cronin, in fact, said there was such demand for content that REO Speedwagon was asked to, and they did, once made four music videos in one day alone. They just couldn't get new content quick enough. Yeah. Um, and in the early days, what actually saved MTV was British music artists. Here's the reason. They were already used to the medium from a weekly music show, and it was called Top of the Pops, and you could only be on this show. Think of American Bandstand. But you could only be on the show if you were in the top 10 or 15 in the charts. So it featured live performances in front of a studio audience. Bands like The Police, Culture Club, Bananarama, and Billy Idol kept the early days of MTV fresh with new video product. Uh, over the years, what British acts did you guys like or come to like as a result of MTV? As a result of MTV, I would have to say none. But that doesn't mean that I don't like British acts. I mean, I love Led Zeppelin. I love Black Sabbath. I love Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, and to this day, one of my guilty pleasures, and it might get me made fun of by some of my fellow diehard heavy, heavy metal fans, I still love this band, especially live, Def Leppard. Also, most important to me on a personal level, my favorite genre of music is thrash metal, sometimes called speed metal, which was really huge in the late 80s to the mid-90s. And the five biggest bands from that genre are Metallica, Megadeth, Slayer, Anthrax, and Pantera. And although all of those bands are American bands, none, and I mean none, would exist without the influence of the godfathers of thrash, the pioneers of this entire genre, Motorhead. 
What about you, Aaron? Any anyone from? I love overseas? that new wave, man. New new wave came along, and you know the, the funky hairstyles, and I don't know the, the music spoke to me. I was total metalhead when I was a kid as well. Um, of course, Quiet Riot's you know you know uh, metal health video stuck in your head. Not a British band, but uh, I have to say Billy Idol. When when I first saw him, and I'm like, this this cat's got something really really cool. The band Genesis, the video for That's All was big. Um, I was in seventh grade when that came out, and it, it just turned me on to well, that record that is on is probably one of my favorite records ever. Very cool. They, they, that, that's all. Some, you know, nice little radio hit, but there's some amazing songs on that. But uh, Genesis, Billy Idol, Duran Duran. My my metal friends would make fun of me, and I'm like, sure. you check out the video for real, and I'm like, they're on they're on yachts with the pretty women. So, uh, <laughs> um, and, and I won't lie to you, it was a, it was like a girlfriend of mine at the time, and I was like, those guys are beep, you know. Yep. We're talking about the '80s, and was, <laughs> they wore makeup, and so if you weren't into dudes that wore makeup and played new wave, you're like, eh. like the Cure, you know, the, the kids on the football team didn't like the Cure, that's for sure. Sure, you know. So it was funny how the, the genres were. Very uh, click specific. Yeah, Duran Duran was basically a pop band. Yeah. Uh, they disguised as new wave or new age or alternative or however you want to romantic. However you want to label wave. something, but yeah. really they were they were a pop band and they did it probably better than anybody else for a couple of years and they had yeah. some huge success. Huge. Not my thing, but I can appreciate talent. Yeah. So we've got all these artists. We have all this content. MTV has a distribution problem. They they can't get it out to the masses quick enough. They're getting no sponsors because Coca-Cola, this is new to them. Uh, Adidas, this is new to them. They, they don't have any sponsorship. So they weren't even around a little over a year, and they actually almost went broke. And here's what saved them. They're looking at ways they can not only spread their channel, get out to the youth of America, but also start turning a profit. Talking to an advertising guy and he says, who, who does MTV belong to? And the owner says, well, the, the people. He goes, exactly. He says, so give it back to them. So here's a brainstorm they have. Let's start going around to artists and two of the owners of MTV. One goes to see Mick Jagger, who he's friends with. One goes to see Pete Townsend. And they come up with this little idea and say, hey, would you just get in front of a camera and say, I want my MTV? And they convince them. And all of a sudden, you've got Pete Townsend holding up a phone and, and Sting from the police holding up a phone. Call your local cable operator and tell them you want your MTV. Guess what happened? Revolution in America. Every kid with nothing to do after they got home from school at 3 o'clock every day, calling, calling, I want my MTV, I want my MTV. The cable companies were calling MTV, begging them, please stop doing this. Well, now Cindy Lauper sees Mick Jagger do it. She wants to do it. Billy Idol sees Sting doing it. He wants to do it. Creates this whole snowball. You have all this free advertising. And that was the tipping point that gave MTV the leverage it needed to become a nationwide presence. And just like that, it burst out across the entire scene of America. So, you know, there's certain videos that came along that were so specially unique or just blew up culturally that they completely changed the landscape of music videos. So I've put together some of the more popular videos or avant-garde or really dove into, hey, let's really make a great video out of this. And and your impressions either as a viewer, whether you like them or not, or, or how you saw them affect the culture of youth in America. Dire Straits, Money for Nothing. Amazing song. Uh, Free advertising for life. I want my MTV. 
Uh, the ly- lyrics of uh, that second verse, I mean, they bleep it out, but I, I'm blown away by the, I don't know, the homophobic 80s that they were able to get away with that. And, and the video alone, the video I guess alone. if you show any 10-year-old video, he'd be like, why'd they make a video with Roblox? Like, with that That's pixelated, Roblox. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All day. Yeah, I just remember watching that all the time. That made the song grow on you, and cool you look forward to it. And I've it covered just, it. It almost seemed like it morphed into like animation, and uh, it was just a it was a, it was something new and fresh and interesting. And that was a big one for Dire Straits. They're this '70s amazing band, but they didn't have they were you know, sure their yeah, their audience was yeah, almost aged of out of them. Yeah, a bunch of dudes at and, that point. Yeah, and then here you go. You, you have. MTV and Money for Nothing and a whole different made thing. It, made a great classic rock band relevant again. Sure. Next yeah. song, Peter Gabriel, Sledgehammer. Huge tune. Uh, what, that, that amazing claymation. Stop motion claymation. Yeah, stop motion claymation. Revolutionary. I believe that man won a crap ton of awards for that. Or made him relevant again. He he was original lead singer of Genesis. Absolutely. Uh, and, and and he never had huge commercial success with, with Genesis. Nobody knew who he was and as a solo artist until that record. So, I mean, his, his stuff was, you know, Shock the Monkey, not exactly the most commercial mainstream thing. But yeah, Sledgehammer. Yeah, when Sledgehammer got released, uh, up to that point, at least my own personal experience, it was definitely – one of the coolest, weirdest, most artsy things I had ever seen, and I'm a big fan of all of those. So, um, even even though uh, it may not have been my favorite song, I, I probably watched that video a couple thousand times and never got bored of it. I remember seeing this next video and thinking, did, did they just send this video from outer space? What did I just watch? Aha! Take on me. Amazing. Uh... The the color, black and white, it's otherworldly, soaring vocals, great story, you know, boy saves girl from the bad guy. This is before CGI. This is before, remember when Roger Rabbit was a big deal, mixing live with drawn animation to have something like that. I just, I spent half the time enjoying it, half the time trying to figure out how they did it. Is that the one where they're, are are they like half real, half cartoon and they're inside like the cooler at a store? I think the boy pulls the girl into the the, the other world. I love that. It was just really, really creative and really different and cool and, and a black and white vibe, which made it artsier. And I, if I'm not mistaken, Family Guy did a takeoff of that video yes, and it was so cool because it brought me back to my teen years. And then they did such a cool job with it and made it hilarious. So yeah, it's been a part of pop culture for decades. Oh yeah. When, when you see that being parodied, people know exactly what that is or people our age at least. Absolutely. Uh, next song. If you want to mobilize the youth of America and take all of their angst, all of their worry, all of their stress, and you just want to kind of amp them up, nothing came into the living room of every American household like the video for We're Not Going to Take It by Twisted Sister. Yeah, man. I mean, I was in my mid-teens when that song came out, and it just fired up a generation. If you wanted to get into a fist fight, go listen to that. If you wanted to be an athlete right before you enter whatever playing surface you're about to try and crush another team to, or if you're just bored or partying or anything, that song, in a way, you know, I I always go to ACDC when I talk about this next statement. 
there are certain music that you can fall in love with it the very first time you hear it. That's not a knock and it's also in a way not a compliment. It just is what it is. Another band that I love is Iron Maiden and the first time you hear it, you don't really get it. And then the second time you hear the song, you start to go like, yeah, I think I like it. And then the third time you hear it turns into a few thousand times. With a band like Twisted Sister and that song or an ACDC hit, the very first time you hear it, and it's not to say that it's simplistic, but it's very catchy. And I think that's what the key is with that. So I'm not saying one's better than the other, but man, that song is transcending generation to generation. And you can hear the first drum beat and know that it's that song. Absolutely. I, I have to agree. That's the first song. You hear that. You're pumped up immediately. That was also the first song when that was on in the living room. I had a stepfather. And well, you know, stepfathers go sometimes you don't see eye to eye. I was a rebellious teen and he hated that song, hated the video. D. Snyder was a vision. <laughs> You're like, what is that? You know, oh man, heavy metal androgyny. Oh no, you know, to a uh, middle America, you know, weenie like my stepdad. It's, it... He was scared. He was scared that I wanted to wear makeup or this, that, and the other. And I let him think that I might. That's and awesome. he hated it, and uh, I loved it, and I and I loved it more. The song kicks ass, boom. And and I oh, yeah. believe the father in the video was the ROTC instructor from Animal right. House. Yeah, right. Niedermeyer. Yeah. Yes, it's yeah. funny that you. What say are that. you gonna do with your? What I was, I want to rock. You know, <laughs> kid goes, I want to rock. Boom, T. Snyder. You're like, uh, but oh yeah, he was the the, the ultimate comical uh, authority figure. I mean, who doesn't love Animal House? It's funny that you say that about you and your stepdad because I actually grew up with like the most perfect childhood. Both my parents were really awesome. And when I heard that song, I just wanted to rebel, but I didn't have anything or anyone to rebel against. So I had to almost create uh, <laughs> angst towards anything I could think of because the song made me want to rebel. Forced angst equals emo. <laughs> yep. My, my, my eighth grade dance before going to high school, and it was a Catholic school, and Having been a DJ now, mistake number one was it was in the cafeteria gymnasium and you've got the stage set up and the DJ's there. But right where it steps off where the audience is and everybody's sitting having dinner was just like four or five eight-foot tables. And it was all the parish priests, all the nuns, all the teachers right there. Right as soon as they said, you know, uh, we're going to get to some dancing now, the first song he played was We're Not Going to Take It by Twisted Sister. And just like, almost like out of the video, they were covering their ears, they were yelling, they made him stop, and they wouldn't let him turn the lights off for the rest of the night. And we had to dance to everything the rest of the night with the lights on, and you could tell that he had to run every song by one of the nuns or priests before for the rest of the night. That's but great. for that couple minutes, it oh, was like our 30-second revolt. Yeah. It was just amazing. Yeah. You know, mosh pits weren't even a thing, a thing. yet, but oh, that yeah. song would make a spontaneous mosh pit just create out of thin air. I mean, it's just... That song's so it good. It gets you amped. You want to hit something and Let's go. Let's go. Right now. Let's sure. play it. So, uh, Aaron, you and I you know, talked about this earlier about having to have an appreciation for all kinds of music. And, Sean, you clearly do. We're always saying, hey, just check out this band and trust me or listen to the song on the radio. Um, Aaron and I are actually doing that on the ride home today. We talked about it on the way here. He's going to enlighten me. I'm going to introduce him to a, just a cool new band. Yeah. Cool. So... If you look at the landscape of America and the limited access to rock music, rap music, all these kinds of music genres out there, it was never really 
forced down your throat where you had to listen to something else. And once you did, you're like, wow, that's kind of pretty amazing. Uh, that happened the minute they came out with the new video for Walk This Way with Run DMC and Aerosmith. That was outstanding. The, the best of both worlds. I mean, I listened to, I mean, I had King of Rock by Run DMC, that big, big tape for me. Um, and who didn't love Aerosmith? Walk This Way was possibly one of the coolest tunes. And when the, the two acts did it together, it was this amazing melding of genres that it, it, you just, I don't know, you seem closer to your friends you know, that listen to just Run DMC or just Aerosmith, like kids that didn't hang out together. They, oh, cool, man. See what Aerosmith did with Run DMC? And, well, at least it was in high school. I absolutely loved it. I yeah. watched it over and over again. It's got some comedy to it where they kick through the wall and yeah. it's got so much rhythm to that song. I, I really genuinely enjoyed that. And it really, it kind of, it may not have been the first, but it was the one that kind of introduced the idea of this crossover mashup of hard rock and metal with hip-hop and rap. And uh, you went on to see things like uh, Anthrax doing Bring the Noise. Um, That's so good. And, and, and to this day, there's bands that I think are influenced by that, like Rage Against the Machine and mm. P.O.D. And I also remember an underground band that I love that most people, and I would be surprised if you guys even knew one song by them, but uh, a band called Biohazard. And they sure. were yep. very much Actually, a... Like a thrash metal slash hip hop. Evan Seinfeld, right? Absolutely. Yeah, bass and vocals. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I think that's cool that you guys know who they are because they were certainly not a mainstream or household mm. name. But I had several of their CDs when I was a college DJ, and they're they're definitely metal, but they have a lot of hip hop influence. Oh yeah. Yeah. It'll okay. just bring some cool rhythm to every song. Got two more for you. This next one's going to be a little bit of word association for those of you that can remember all the way back to, I think it was a newlywed game where they'd have a couple and he'd ask a question and someone would write an answer and they'd see if their spouse answered. I want you to summarize this video in one word. Robert Palmer, addicted to love. Lipstick. Glamour. I'm sorry, you're both wrong. I had boobs. <laughs> I'd be more than happy to talk about the fact that I love the f those ladies were not wearing any undergarments. Chris had boobs, but we don't know what his answer to the question is. <laughs> okay, and those are some great answers to some really great videos. Now we get to the where were you moment. I'm going to let you dig in, Aaron. Thriller, Michael Jackson. Uh, 12, 13, paper route, like I said. That was that was the that was big. Uh, we were already wearing at school the the jacket with the zippers. Uh, the more bolder kids wore the glove. Tried to do the dance, failed miserably. I can't dance, but uh, yeah, I was a, I was a little little kid in Springfield, Mass, and uh, it, it just it exploded. The world stopped. The world stopped when Thriller came on, and there was a good month or or so where they played it once an hour on the hour, and God forbid you try to get your paper money scratch. They they said in different um, books and documentaries that it's the first time they ever had to, when a video ended, cut right to the VJ to announce when it would be on again. I can see that. Endlessly fascinated by it. Was glad that it was on so much in heavy rotation. Loved everything about the video again, even though it's not my cup of tea when it comes to music-wise. Um, just cool from start to finish, very interesting, very creative. If I were to describe Thriller to someone who had never heard of it, I would just say somebody took the word Halloween and made a five-minute movie about it. That's good. 
it, it's just cool and Spot fun on. And, and really awesome. In the beginning, great references to the old school horror movies and Michael Jackson's outfit, you know, the old school Letterman jacket. And, it, you know, it was spooky. Yes. So let's let's zone in on that a little bit more about Michael Jackson. More specifically, let's segue to Black Artists on MTV. The network's director of music programming, Buzz Brindle, told an interview in 2006, well, you know, MTV was originally designed to be a rock music channel. It was difficult for MTV to find African-American artists who fit music that we like to play on our channel and our format, and that leans towards that rock look that we're trying to achieve. So in that comes one of the many watershed moments that happened that caused a, a true seismic shift, not only in the history of MTV, but the entire music industry. It can all be traced back to one interview with an artist who really seems unlikely, but this maybe 15-minute interview changed the face of music for black artists. Would you guys even have a guess who it would be? Prince. Quincy Jones. Uh, would it surprise you to hear that it was David Bowie? Not at all. No, uh, that that cat used black artists or black musicians. I mean, look at young Americans. Oh, yeah, but Bowie was multicultural. So let me tell you a story about an interview in 1993 with Mark Goodman and, and what came as a result of that. They went through their interview. He was doing a promotion, and, and his, you could tell on the uh, off-camera his assistants were yeah, – a- ask him, ask him. And, and so – they said, yeah, is there something else you want to talk about? We have some time. And and this is the actual transcript <clears throat> between David Bowie and Mark Goodman. David Bowie says, I'm just floored by the fact that there's so few black artists on MTV. Why is that? It's apparent that the few black artists who are on are played at 2.30 in the morning until around 6 a.m. Very few are featured predominantly during the day. There are a lot of black artists making very good videos that aren't being shown on MTV. And this was the response that's recorded. Well, we have to do not only what New York and Los Angeles will like, but uh, uh, Poughkeepsie or Midwest, uh, pick some town in the Midwest that would be scared to death by Prince, which we're playing, or, or a string of other black faces. We have to play the music an entire country is going to like. We can only teach a little bit at a time. And David continued to challenge MTV in this interview and throughout the rest of the interview, and he eventually got up and walked out. I mean, holy shit. That answer is just bullshit, man. You know what that is? That's somebody who's racist, who's trying to to disguise that they're racist by passing the buck and saying, oh, if I had my way, it would be okay, and then coming up with some (laughs) lame-ass excuses and other people to blame. Oh, that's weak. Well said. That is super weak. Who said that? Can I ask? Mark Goodman. Mark Goodman said that. And he said later, it's the biggest regret of his professional life. I'm sure at the behest of his uh, corporate overlords, but... Mark, Mark, Mark Goodman, I'm sure, didn't. No, he, he was. He's like, crap, what do I say he, here? He was trying to keep his job. Yeah. So, <laughs> so before 1983, Michael Jackson, he also struggled to receive airtime on MTV. The Thriller album had already been released in November of 1983, but it wouldn't really catch traction until later after videos were released. So to resolve this struggle, 
um, and finally break the color barrier, the president of CBS Records at the time, Walter Yetnikoff, denounced MTV in a very strong, profane statement, threatening to take away MTV's ability to play any of their record labels' music videos. And there, there wasn't a lot of record labels at the time. He said, anybody with CBS Records, we will not allow you to play their music videos. And MTV is scrambling, and now they have this whole racial issue going on. And um, this is maybe a little bit bittersweet, but you'll never believe who came to the rescue for black artists indirectly. Eddie Van Halen. Hmm. Let me tell you why. They're scrambling. We're a rock station. We play rock music. Hey, wait a minute. Look at the liner notes. Eddie Van Halen co-wrote Beat It with Michael Jackson, and he's credited with co-writing, and he plays the guitar in the whole song. You know what? That makes it a rock song. Let's play Billie Jean and put it in the rotation. So they, they get in touch with CBS Records. They say, send it. We're going to play it. They send it. They put it in the cassette recorder to play before they're going to air it. What did they do? CBS Records and Michael Jackson said, no, we, we think this other song, Billie Jean, is going to be much stronger. And they swapped it out right before it was going to air. And all the leadership of and ownership of MTV put it on. And they said their mouths dropped to the floor. And they couldn't believe what an incredible artist he was, what an incredible video it was. And they put it immediately into rotation. And that would have never happened if it wasn't for Eddie Van Halen. I, oh, the whole Eddie Van Halen, not only he he took um, beat it from its – he allegedly rearranged that song. Michael was gracious. Eddie was nervous. Like, crap, I don't know if he's going to like what I did. Came in and heard it, knocked it out of the park. Obviously, thank you for doing this. And the, talk about – that was all the talk. Did you know that's Eddie Van Halen? 1984 had come out. Thriller had come out. I mean, these two artists were big, yeah, you know, gigantic, and perhaps the biggest case of irony. Uh, a few years later, Michael Jackson became a white artist. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he did. So I he, keep hearing. Sorry to interrupt. I keep hearing so many great things about Eddie Van Halen since his passing, and I was the biggest fan. Like half the world and I absolutely love the guy but I have just heard nothing but really kind good things and to expand on what Aaron was talking about I did hear that story in detail where Eddie just played with the song and then yeah. asked if it would be okay and Michael wanted to listen to it and he loved it and Eddie never wanted credit and he never wanted right. money he yep. just did it because he thought it was cool and fun to help another artist I was in a grocery store and Beat It was on and I, I'm constantly doing this. Oh, Eddie Van Halen played guitar in this and some 12-year-old kid walking by me, who's who's Eddie Van Halen? This was months ago and I'm like, oh, ask your dad, kid. Yeah. And, right. uh, you know, it just it makes the song. So um, famed director John Landis was working with Quincy Jones to put the Thriller video together and they had obviously such high production costs. They went to MTV and they said – we want you to pay for the video. And MTV said, we don't pay for videos. And they said, well, then we will shop it around to HBO and Showtime. And they showed them a little bit of the footage. And MTV was like, we have lightning in a bottle. We have to get this video. And back then, you had people who didn't know what they were doing directing videos. You know, you heard of the Transformer movies, Michael Bay. I mean, he's the king of action movies for the past 20 plus years. You know how he started? His first job as a director was directing a video for Donny Osmond. 
So you, you had a lot of talent back then and people didn't know, you know, what to make of it and people made their careers out of it. So MTV goes back to John Landis and Quincy Jones and says, if you could get some of your B footage and how you do the makeup and how the video is made and we do a making of documentary mm. and we'll air it for an hour before the video, well, then we'll pay for the production costs of the documentary. And within the production costs, they buried the cost of the whole video because otherwise they didn't want every artist coming to them and saying, pay for our video, pay for our video. Yeah. And they basically paid for Thriller to be made and had exclusive rights before other channels could show it. Smart. Because it was the biggest thing that year and many years after. Debuted yeah. <laughs> on MTV on December 2nd, 1983. Now, here's here's the floodgates that opened and the landslide that it caused for black artists. Prince's Little Red Corvette got pushed into heavy rotation. Electric Avenue by Eddie Grant joined Billie Jean, which was still in heavy rotation. At the end of August, She Works Hard for the Money by Donna Summer went into heavy rotation. Herbie Hancock's Rocket and Lionel Richie's All Night Long were placed in heavy rotation. And now MTV has variety, right? Yeah. Yo, MTV Raps. That's where we're going to jump to next. 1988, MTV debuts Yo, MTV Raps, a hip-hop rap formatted program. MTV progressively increased its airing of hit rappers by way of this program, such as MC Hammer, LL Cool J, Queen Latifah, Salt and Peppa. Tone Loke, Naughty by Nature, MC Light, Sir Mix-A-Lot. Also played up-and-coming R&B artists such as Janet Jackson and Vogue, Belle Biv DeVoe, Tony Tony Tony, TLC, and Boys to Men. Now we've got our variety that had been lacking for years. Now you're appealing to bases. Now you have it where anyone in any house in America can go watch MTV. My question to you is this. Whether it was their looks, personality, or style, certain bands and artists' careers were made by MTV because they were just camera-ready and the public ate them up, where they may have never existed on such an A-list level without the exposure MTV gave them. Let me give you guys some examples and let you answer. You know, you just look at them and you're like, wow, they, they were just made to be on MTV. Cindy Lauper, Billy Idol, Prince, Eurythmics, Culture Club, Madonna. What are some bands and artists who you feel possibly because of the way they were packaged, owe their careers to MTV. Well, I, I, I'll go to the hair metal genre here, uh, Bon Jovi, Poison, but most definitely David Lee Roth's solo, solo career. I mean, the the video for Yankee Rose was the coolest thing I ever saw. You know, give me a bottle of anything and a glazed donut to go. And, it, you know, it's just we got to see it. You know, he, he was cool. His cool was broadcast constantly on MTV, Dave TV. Um. Another band, I think, Holland Oates. Holland Oates was a big, big one for me. That was my first concert I ever got to go to, and uh, they they were a big band where they they had done videos, but it was yeah. But the uh, Big Bam Boom record was there with the Big sure. Bam Boom tour, and the Method of Modern Love was their big, you know, yeah. corny top forty hit. But it was a big MTV video, and it, it kind of put them on a different pedestal. They regularly played the Apollo. Does that happen if people just show up and it's, it's just two white guys playing who they've never seen before? It's funny. That, well, you know, those guys in there, the blue-eyed soul, they uh, model a lot of their uh, their sound off that Philadelphia, that smooth, you know, the harmony sure. thing. And they owed a lot to the Temptations and Eddie Ruffin. Um, uh, pardon me, David Ruffin and Eddie Kendrick came out from the Temptations, and they believe there they was uh, My Girl. Sure. It was big. And I went into sure. talk about another pairing of genres and, and white and black artists. And it's funny to see 
you know, who you think, oh, they're a great band and I love them growing up to see those that stuck with it and became actually accomplished musicians because I don't get too often, but when I get a chance and I think of it, I love watching Live from Daryl's House and some of the bands that he has on there. And it's it's just like watching a clinic in music. Hands down the best show on television right now. And it, it's a shame he, he can't do much with his live video, but the concept alone, hey, Let's invite this artist. You never would have thought, oh, I'm going to jam with CeeLo, and we're going to break some bread, have a couple bottles of wine, and a nice meal cooked by a local chef right. in my home. Sure. It's genius. Love that, man. Sean? Yeah, so just just a disclaimer. Uh, Aaron didn't know my answers walking in. I didn't know his, and neither one of us knew what Chris was going to say. So if it seems a bit repetitive, maybe there's a good reason for that because – Great minds think alike, and so do idiots, and I'll let the audience decide which we are. But who owes their career to MTV based on their looks? Every hair metal band on the planet that has ever turned a profit, especially Poison. Other artists that come to mind for me, Britney Spears, The Bangles, Till Tuesday, a lot of rap and hip-hop artists, Salt and Peppa, LL Cool J, TLC, Destiny's Child, which of course spawned the super sensation Beyonce. And for me, if I could think of one person whose career absolutely exploded due to MTV, I would say Janet Jackson. Sure. Sure. Oh, yeah. Big videos. Just went from being a known artist to one of the biggest artists in the world for about a decade. So would it be fair to compare her during the 80s to – Jennifer Lopez in the 2000s as far as just exposure and sure. how much a visual medium built her audience. Sure. Absolutely. And yeah. there's there's several along the way of many genres and uh, both genders. And, uh, you know, you can look at Christina Aguilera's career, yeah. uh, hugely helped by MTV. Uh, Jessica Simpson, uh, bands like Bon Jovi, bands like Van Halen. Sure, they're talented and sure, they had some exposure other than MTV, but that, man, I'm telling you, that, that, that thing really just exploded a lot of artists. That, and that's what I, I go back to because it had to happen. You know, there's, you know, uh, Circus Magazine and uh, Hit Parade, you know, to see the, the pictures of your favorite rocker, David Lee Roth. But now you get to see David Lee Roth in video. Doing the ki- the high kicks and being cool and like all I, it had to happen and it's 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 just amazing. The people wanted it. And look look what it did and look where it took us. Go go back to your knowledge of in the seventies before MTV when they would make these promotional videos sure. for the record companies <clears throat> and when I told you they wanted to start kind of showing them more concert footage type just performing in front of a camera to play in the record stores. Yeah, there was a band who said. Hey, wait a minute. There's this new thing, MTV. Can we take all the money that you want us to do that silly record store thing and make a video, but they probably won't show it and we're just going to do a bunch of crazy shit in it? And they're like, yeah, we don't care. And it was Devo and the song was Whip It. Nice. And that was to see. You wanted to see your favorite band mugging it up, you know, being silly, chasing after girls, whatever that, that band was into um, that they could show. And it, it was a home for one hit wonders as well as the artists who are still playing today. Sure. Yeah. And Aaron, I'm really glad you keep bringing up the David Lee Roth stuff because Van Halen was my favorite band all through that, that era. And when either he left or got kicked out, whichever story you tend to believe, um, it was a big deal. And it was a mm. really big deal big for deal. people who were fans. 
And when he came out with his new solo stuff, I believe it would have had almost no success whatsoever if there were no music videos. Absolutely. And then you listened to the songs multiple times because the videos were so funny, yeah, so entertaining, so fun and creative and wild and weird and bizarre that the songs tended to grow on you. And you probably wouldn't have given them that much of a chance because they weren't the hard rock you were used to with Dave. Nah. They were kind of poppy and jazzy and bluesy and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the diehard Roth fans were just hoping it was going to be Van Halen Part 2 and it couldn't have been more opposite. And even myself got sucked into some of that music that I probably wouldn't have given a second chance if I had simply just heard it on the radio. Yeah, he, he didn't get into the, the hard rock thing. He, that EP, um, uh, Crazy from the Heat, you know, mm-hmm. with California Girls and, of course, Just a Gigolo. It's the version with all due respect to Louis Prima. Sure. Yeah. Now, MTV kind of sucked in anyone that came into its orbit and helped make them famous. Let's let's look away from musicians. Let's talk about some of the celebrities over the whole nearly 40-year history who made a name for themselves on MTV like Dennis Leary, Adam Sandler, Pauly Shore, for example. Sean? Yeah, I mean it's a big launching pad for several comedians. Jim Brewer, uh, like you said, Dennis Leary, Pauly Shore, those are the names that come to mind. There was totally Pauly. That's what uh, really got him out there uh-huh. um, and, and became a household name and was able to get a movie career and also make millions of dollars touring as a headlining stand-up. Dennis Leary was doing these like sarcastic, tough guy, wise-ass commercials Black for and TV. Yeah. And, uh to this day, the guy's an incredible writer, producer, actor, and a very accomplished stand-up. Jim Brewer went on to Saturday Night Live and uh, still very relevant today and just an amazing stand-up comedian and a really, really cool guy. And and there's several others. Yeah, you know, on Remote Control, there was kind of the Sandler. buffoon they always kind of beat on. That was Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler. Who's still a very current voice of a generation, started with his own show. And Colin Quinn. Right. Yeah. John Stewart. Sure. Ben Stiller at his own show. So. It, it's funny. One comedian comes to mind. Um, and it, it's funny. Oh, in addition to Sam Kinison, who they MTV showed the Wild Thing video constantly, uh, comedian made for MTV, Andrew Dice Clay. And as obscene as he was, you know. He was camera ready. He was camera ready. He had that cool nostalgic 50s look, the the, the little bit with the, the, the lighter, the filthy language. We ate it up. He had the gimmick. He had it was, the it was a he had a hook. You know, he had something rhymes, that yeah. would catch you, and uh, <laughs> the look and the the voice, and he was a character much like the right. Polly Shores and the Bobcat Goldthwait. The, the real Andrew Dice Clay is not that misogynist. Sure, you know, sure. No. <laughs> so let's switch to you know the influence of MTV on TV and movies. Um, so 1983, Flashdance, the movie comes out. It was the first film in which the promoters just kind of pulled musical segments and footage from it and supplied them to MTV and basically made it an extended trailer. And it went into the regular rotation and it, it just kind of blew up. So really, movies and TV learned to marry the two. And let me just blow by you guys with some of the top-earning movie soundtracks of the 80s. Purple Rain... 13 million units, Dirty Dancing, 11 million units, Footloose, 9 million units, Top Gun, 9 million units, Flashdance, 6 million, as well as The Breakfast Club. Now, from Miami Vice to Footloose, The Breakfast Club, Top Gun, Dirty Dancing, and beyond, 
Music played as an important of a role in a TV show or a movie success as the actual actors in it and often made a band or artist career. Let me give you a couple examples. Phil Collins' solo career just went through the stratosphere after In the Air Tonight blew up on Miami Vice, right? I remember that scene. Which was basically one long music video, right? He's, he's riding along Dude, in his Ferrari. Uh, uh, Crockett and Tubbs are yep. going to kill the bad guy. They're yep. going to get him. And that song fades in. I'm just, oh, I'm getting chills right now, too. Yep. Uh, oh, another yeah. another is former Eagle frontman Glenn Fry, who was also on Miami Vice. And then his solo career skyrocketed after The Heat Is On was put on the Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack. Yes. Um, here, let me give you guys a little bit of trivia. An example of an almost miss is Don't You Forget About Me from the movie Breakfast Club by The Simple Minds. They owe their entire career to that movie, and they almost passed on it. They didn't think it was a fit. They didn't like the writing. It was first offered to Brian Ferry, Billy Idol, Corey Hart, and the lead singer from The Fix. Um, you guys have any any thoughts in your head of TV or movies where you're just like, oh, I, I didn't even see the movie, but I love this soundtrack, um, where we kind of transcended from the TV set to movies and, you know, I just love that soundtrack and had to have it and played it back and forth. When I think of Dirty Dancing, it's not just like the songs they recorded, but the oldies, man. There was a big oldies explosion at the end of the 80s. Uh, and so, you know, Do You Love Me, Contours, you know, yep. I, I was introduced to a whole new show without that's oldies. Dirty Dancing made it cool. So did Stand By Me. So, yeah, yeah. Very, oh, yeah. Talk, great soundtrack. Yeah. The Big Chill was always talked about. Uh, for their soundtrack and a lot, a lot of nostalgic sixties. But for me, it's uh, say anything. Say, say anything uh, had you know obviously in your eyes was a big hit. But the music that the character Lloyd Dobler listened to, you know, was on the cutting edge of you know alternative, if you will. And you know some of these bands that you know skate you know, skate metal or thrash metal, sure. whatever genre. But I, I always like that uh, that's a, that soundtrack as well. Say anything. Yeah, and, and I, I think of uh, how music uh, becomes more popular because it's involved with the movie or television industry or vice versa. A show can can become more popular when music uh, has an influence on the audience. And things that come to mind for me would be Whitney Houston's remake of Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You for Standing. the movie Bodyguard, so yep. one of the biggest hits of all time. And just an incredible version. She's in the conversation of the greatest singer of all time. And, and it really it went hand in hand with the movie. I would disagree uh, and say her greatest hit was on the corner of a tub, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. And that is why I love him, folks. And that is that. <laughs> uh, I also think of Phil Collins, Against All Odds. Um, Great movie, you know, and and the song was as important oh. as the movie, and the movie was Moving as important song. as the song. And that, that movie's so good. I was I was explaining that movie to somebody. It's like a modern noir crime thriller. There's sex, you, well, of course. But. You like to think that some people only watched the movie because they loved the song. And it, it was amazing. Oh, there's a great race scene with James Woods and uh, Jeff Bridges. Sure. I'm watching that later. And and the way music crosses into the TV industry, I mean, think of the the reach the theme from Friends has. Think of the theme from Dawson's Creek. And that's another thing that I think Family Guy has uh, has used in one of their episodes. And I remember I was watching it with my friend and she had a young son at the time. He was under 10 years old. And we watched Family Guy – where they used the Dawson's Creek theme as this funny thing, and it was probably less than a 15-second clip. 
And he played it over and over <laughs> and over and then went out and bought the song, uh, you know, on a recorded version because uh-huh. of how much he loved it. And for me, on a personal note, I mean, I, I keep talking about Headbangers Ball, but when I heard that riff, that guitar riff in the beginning of the show, just to intro with the words Headbangers Ball on the screen, I had to know who it was. And I did some research and I found out it was not a big band at the time. The name, And they're still not to this day, but the name of the band is Prong. Mm. The name of the song is Snap Your Finger, Snap Your Neck. I went out and bought that and several others of their CDs. And unfortunately, that time in my life is quite a blur, but I'm pretty sure I have seen them live. Nice. Yeah. Those iconic, you know, Hearing the MTV, like it, oh yeah, I can hear the Headbangers Ball riff in my head right now. Sing just it, from sing it for me. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Sounds like Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, s- silly little things. Um, when CDs started becoming popular in the the early to mid nineties, um, and it came around Christmas time, and as a DJ, you had to kind of track that Christmas dinner music. What got a resurgent was Frank Sinatra let it snow ever since then, simply because it was played at the end of Die Hard. Sure. And for me, just on a personal, completely selfish note, and five million other people can have five million other opinions, but it just hit me at at the peak of my youth when I was getting ready to go be a senior in high school. And it was a mix of youth and defiance and cool and sexy and relevant and music, uh, there will never be a second for me uh, outside of the movie and soundtrack to The Lost Boys. Absolutely. That's the sexiest movie of the 80s all day. Jamie Gertz, my word. The, the, the male cast even, like, they couldn't have cast. It's perfect. You got the Corys, Kiefer, yep. those nameless, handsome vampire dudes. <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland. Oh, man. Lost Boys. Boom. Had it all. And Bill from Bill and Ted. Yeah. 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 I, oh, trust I, me, I know. I love the way music can, Winter. can evoke emotion. And when you put it in a movie oh. and it just fits just right in the pocket of oh, that yeah. scene and makes the emotions that much stronger. Just off the top of my head, this isn't even in my notes. This is just coming to me now. Would be Goodfellas with the Rolling Stones. And also uh, the way Adam Sandler used Tuesday's Gone by, oh, by Skinner. And, and uh, Happy Gilmore. And, and just all the different – I mean Sandler has been a real friend to classic rock. And Absolutely. Movies. He loves ELO. He loves sticks. And the, the emotion <laughs> and it's always at the right point. It, when it works, man, it just it makes the movie that much better. Lest mm-hmm. we forget what Pee Wee Herman did with tequila. <laughs> My word. <laughs> Let's all try to forget. <laughs> so, so we're, we're going to get through a little bit more of the 80s and transition to some of the newer uh, thoughts and, and uh, trivia and cool stuff about MTV. Uh, if we jump back just a little bit to 1984, the channel produced its first MTV Video Music Awards shows, the VMAs. The first award show was punctuated by a live performance of Madonna of Like a Virgin. Uh, the statuettes that are handed out at the VMAs are of the MTV Moon Man, the channel's original image from its first broadcast in 91. And still to this day, the VMAs are MTV's most watched annual event. 1985, for most of July, MTV just 
over and over and over showed the Live Aid concerts held in London and Philadelphia and organized by Bob Geldof to raise funds for the famine relief in Ethiopia. ABC only showed a few select highlights. They basically put it on a, on a rotation. Do you guys have any memories of, of that broadcast and just monumental in the, seeing the lineup? I, I know they released the lineup in advance of what bands you could see. So, yeah, for me, Live Aid, I mean, it, it was bigger than music. It was bigger than charity. It was just a world event. And everything about it was right. You know, the, the heart was in the right place that created that event. And, and the buildup was amazing. And you brought the whole world together for a really great cause. For me, favorite moments. And, and I think I watched the entire thing. And I was just glued to it and endlessly fascinated. For me, the big moments would be Phil Collins, if I remember correctly, played both locations he and did. took a jet from one to the other so that he could be live at both. I thought that was really cool and uh, just a unique thing. Uh, Queen was amazing, uh, incredible. And also for me, uh, my personal favorite highlight Two words, lead fucking Zeppelin. I, I agree with you 100%. Like, great minds think alike. Uh, sure, Queen was amazing. But the fact that Phil Collins played in England at Wembley and then jumped on a Concord, flew to Philadelphia and played with Tony Thompson, two drummers uh, for the Led Zeppelin reunion. And that was one of those bands I had to see. That paper route I had, I didn't collect that day. And I remember my bring. Are uh, you gonna bring your paper money? I'm like, nope. nope. Live Aid's on. I didn't. Oh yeah, I got in huge trouble. And yeah, I, was I like, hope it was the person who told you Thriller was on earlier yeah. when you tried. No, to no, it was the, the paper manager guy. And there was no way in hell I was I was leaving the house, and I just got cable in my room. So life was extra sweet then. Nice. And uh, but yes, Phil Collins, boom, jumping on a Concord, and and his career was his solo career was check. Getting gigantic at the time. Absolutely. And, you know, love him or hate him, that, that man is a wealth of talent. I sure. would have watched polka. I would have watched country that day. Yeah. I was just glued to the Practically event. did. And there's a lot of lot of different music, you know, so many different artists. I don't think we were ever glued to a TV like that again until uh, OJ and the White Bronco. Seriously. I had a bachelor party for myself that night. We're sitting at a local <laughs> bar going shots and... OJ, great. I'm go on record and say Live Aid was a bu much better reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're oh, not can even. Can I interrupt? He was just telling a funny story. Literally live when the Bronco chase was happening, I was drinking at a local bar and there was a yeah. ton of people there and it had just come on the TV and I started to figure out, I think maybe that's OJ because the news had saying he might be a suspect. And then they put the words across the bottom of the screen. And it was a long time. And I snuck over to the disc jockey booth, whispered in the guy's ear, and he played Bad Boys, the theme from Cops yeah, in the did. background. <laughs> and, uh, and he took all the credit for it. It was fascinating, wasn't it? You know, was little, wow, OJ, he's famous. And what's going on? Slow speed chase. My word. <laughs> So here's, here's a contribution MTV uh, made to the world. In 1986, actually, uh, video airplay was down. There seemed to have been a level off of watching music videos. And while it still was popular, uh, the powers that be felt a stagnation with what was happening at MTV. And they said, you know, we keep saying 
the people out there in TV land own MTV. They're the audience. Let's turn the cameras on them. And the first seed of reality TV was born when they started broadcasting Spring Break. You guys have any memories of that? Pretty outrageous. You know, all these celebs partying, the, the lip sync to performances, girls in bikinis. It was, it was pretty wild. It looked like a, a fun scene. I, you know, I certainly wouldn't enjoy anything like that until years after. But it was, it was pretty wild. When it first came on, it caught my interest and people were partying and wearing bathing suits and hanging out and acting crazy. And it got kind of boring for me pretty quickly because it was the same thing over and over again. And I've always been annoyed by this. And this still happens to this day at sporting events, anywhere there's a live camera and microphone. When somebody looks at a crowd and says, hey, how you doing? And they scream, woo! No matter what you asked any one of those drunk idiots who I was probably just as drunk and that much of an idiot when I was college age, no matter what you asked them, they had to scream woo into the microphone. Cheap tactics. And I just basically got annoyed with it after a while. But when it was new and fresh, it was, you know, at least check it out because it's something new. And not calling you a hypocrite because you don't like that, but it was cool for you to do that at the hospital every time a baby was born. (laughs) (laughs) so jump ahead to really the pivotal years of mtv in their growth 86 to 89 they had debuted dial mtv a daily top 10 music video countdown where viewers could call the toll-free number 1-800-DIAL-MTV and request a music video also in 1986 the channel introduced 120 minutes a show that featured low rotation alternative rock and other quote underground videos for the next 14 years on mtv and eventually three additional sister year channels on mtv2 program then became known as subterranean tv on mtv2 eight years later 120 minutes was resuscitated with matt pinfield taking over uh, another late-night music show was added in 1987, Headbangers Ball, which featured heavy metal music and news. And then in 1989, the musical performance show MTV Unplug aired. So let me ask you guys this. While rock and roll enjoyed public acceptance dating back to the 50s and 60s from artists like Elvis Presley, The Beatles, Chuck Berry, alternative music, hard rock, and heavy metal have always had to fight for a place in the world and on the radio. Talk about the influence of the MTV original shows like 120 Minutes, Headbangers Ball, and MTV Unplugged. Go ahead, Aaron. I tell you, uh, probably the first time I ever saw Nine Inch Nails was probably on uh, 120 Minutes. That's for sure. In the late 80s, you know, that first record was 89. MTV Unplugged always have a major, major place in my heart. I, and if I may, the Unplugged concept, there was an award show, probably MTV Awards. Richie Sambora and John Bon Jovi did an acoustic rendition of Wanted Dead or Alive. Nice. This is the late 80s before Unplugged, I'm sure. But it, 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 they took a hard rock song from their, their you know, their, their, uh, their set and they, they stripped it down. And, man, I loved MTV Unplugged. Uh, Squeeze did an amazing p- performance. But for me, um, Led Zeppelin did one in the, the 90s. And, but for uh, STP. STP did an amazing uh, Unplugged, and I just remember uh, Bit the Big Empty from yeah. that great yeah. song. And, and I'll say before Sean chimes in, because for me, 
It was simply Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, and STP changed the entire way I looked at and listened <laughs> to music. And really, anyone who has an acoustic guitar, like a couple of lefties like us, you can look back to two things. MTV Unplugged and Tesla 5-Man Acoustical Jam. Oh, that record is so good. Life-changing. So good. And I know you have a lot to say about Headbangers Ball because it's a lot of your identity. So we're going to turn the mic over to Sean. Sure. Um, you know, as far as alternative or hard rock or metal, I'm glad that they had an avenue to, to get out there and be seen and heard. As far as 120 minutes, I don't really have a lot to say good or bad about it. I felt like it was just a cool way to package uh, another segment of videos and and bring in some interest for people who liked, you know, something that was a little off the beaten path. Uh, as far as Unplugged goes, now, acoustic in general, I'm not really a huge fan, but I can definitely appreciate it, you know, when, when it's a talented artist. I think of Nirvana and Pearl Jam, and my two favorites to hear acoustic are probably Tesla and Alice in Chains. Just really like the sound that they bring. Um, I saw a really cool clip once. It may be from Unplugged. I'm not sure, but I think I saw it on YouTube. And it was an acoustic version of Puddle of Mud. And I was pretty blown away at how great it was. Um, I like a song here or there like Patience, you know, by Guns N' Roses. And I also love shows like these singing competitions. You guys can make fun of me. You can call me a geek. It's just one of my my guilty pleasures is to watch things like American Idol and The Voice and those types of shows. And when a truly artistic contestant takes a popular song, whether it's rock, metal, rap, pop, country, you name it, anything at all, and they strip it down and do a slow acoustic version. If it's done right, it can be a really cool, unique thing. And I've always appreciated the artistic abilities of things like that. Now, for me, the acoustic thing started when I was listening to, I want to say it was AAF out of Boston. And they had Tesla live in the studio and they played signs with acoustic guitars and nobody really was doing that anywhere at the time, so to speak. And that just took on a life of its own. And they started asking every artist they interviewed to please do an acoustic version of a hit. And I think Tesla went on to do it at all their interviews across the country. And I just remember that specifically. I may have it wrong. Like maybe it's not the first, but for me, it was yes. the first, you know. Headbangers Ball, I could bore the shit out of you guys and go on and on. Let me just say... For metalheads, there was no radio station, okay? There was no mainstream. It was you liked this music because you heard it from a buddy or you got it from a demo tape the best way. or word of mouth yeah. or college radio is really the only venue where you could be introduced to metal. Hmm. Headbangers Ball, man – Metal fans are really loyal, and they're always hungry for anything they can get their hands on. And that show, I mean, it was anything from some real mellow hair metal to some real heavy, heavy underground thrash and everything in between. And I was just glued to it. If I wasn't going to be home, I'd set the VCR, and I watched every single episode, every second of it. It was really well done, and it was a cool way to get introduced to new bands and see songs that I loved for years and never even known there was a video for them. Love everything about Headbangers Ball. That's awesome. 
So <clears throat> it's time to put the 80s to bed so the adults can stay up and talk. I want to wrap up that part of the segment with doing a countdown of the top 10 videos of all time specific to the 80s on MTV. This isn't based on writers. This isn't based on viewers. This is based on um, the amount of times it was aired and all the analytics that MTV has. Now, I'll I'll just jump to the chase and say Michael Jackson Thriller was number one. Um, But tell me if any of these surprise you. And again, this is based on the amount of overall airplay and I think a little bit of the metrics was how long they stayed on charts and things like that. Number 10, Genesis, Land of Confusion from 1986. Yeah. Yeah. That riff, that has some stank. Oh, yeah. The creepy puppets. And a very awesome, awesome video with the, the puppets. <laughs> uh, number nine, In Excess, Need You Tonight slash Mediate, where it blended the two songs. <laughs> Please. Amazing. Hutchins. And the, 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 the whole bit with Mediate, what they do is they, they, they cop off of Bob Dylan for a subterranean homesick blues. Yeah. Yes. He did promotional video from the 60s. Yes. There's Bob Dylan. Man, is he in the basement mixing up the mess? And he's sitting there with the cards and he's just dropping them in the He's dropping them in there. One. And each member of the band, you remember that video? They come in and they do that. I've always wanted to try to pull that off live. We used to cover that song, but this is the reason we brought Aaron today. This is fascinating. Oh really. man, yeah, and it's 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 a it's a throwback to Bob Dylan. Hey, so cool. In excess for me, I just think of high school dances and <sighs> the floor being packed for man. those guys. They were they were so huge. Kick in that day. Kick is easily my top five best sure. best album sure. of the eighties. And here's something amazing and weird about In Excess because in researching this, I've just watched hours of concert footage. I'll watch the old video, then I'll watch the band performing in the the past couple years and you know, you can say, well, you listen to U2 now, but man, to listen to the Joshua Tree, you can have that comparison, but they were such a time capsule that were made for the 80s and perfect. And they're from Australia, and they're still like royalty over there. And even when they got a new lead singer, but they really, they're part of the soundtrack of my life easily. Absolutely. Such an important band. And, I'll, you know, the musicianship is great, but no one will ever be Michael Hutchins. He, he was he was macho. He was sexy. You can say, that dude's sexy and not feel weird about it. Like, he was the first, he's the only man I'll ever love. I understand. He, he was a, a really interesting, unique, cool front man, and nothing he did looked like it was phony. Yeah, genuine. And he got dissed by Oasis at the Brit Awards. Sure did. Ugh. Number eight, Bruce Springsteen, born in the USA. It's a, it's a like like one of the cornerstones of America. You're not going to see fireworks without listening to that song. Yeah, and gladly. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who who's the marketing guy who says, "What do you want? Here's 30 concept ideas for the album cover. How about my ass and an American flag?" Absolutely, Bruce Bruce Springsteen is certainly not a, an icon, you know, a sex sex symbol, if you will. But and musically speaking, that song is pretty. It's a riff. That's it. Yeah. It's a riff. Huge. Gigantic. uh, Loved by jocks. Loved by the whole classic rock community and just really sustained uh, for a really long time after it was released. Such an important 80s song because here we are. It's 1984. We're in the grips of the Cold War. There was this big USA. Real. I mean, you know, there was a patriotic... Fever, if you will, and um, 
The guy wrote a song called Born in the USA. Boom. I mean, sure. forget about it. And and for as long as we've known each other, and I certainly know Sean's musical taste, but I know your appreciation for music. And one of my metrics for some of the artists I like is an album you can truly, back in our day, put in the cassette tape or the CD or the iTunes and without messing with the order, listen to it from beginning to end and have a thousand memories and be blown away and find something different to appreciate about it every time. Can anyone argue that one of those albums of all time is not Appetite for Destruction? Oh, man. Because number seven is Guns N' Roses' Sweet Child of Mine. Yeah. Oh, iconic riff. Started out as a a hand exercise, you know, just a warm-up exercise. But I'll say this. Sorry, I, I didn't mean no, to interrupt. No, you didn't. <laughs> for, first, first time I ever saw Guns N' Roses was a video for Appetite. Uh, pardon me. Um, Welcome to the Jungle. Getting off the bus. Getting off the bus. And you hear the riff. And I don't know, the, the gutter roll, rah, the scream. And I, to be honest with you, I didn't like it. I was like, I don't know. I, I didn't like. I didn't like his voice. It grew on me. My best friend, hey, man, I really like Guns N' Roses. And I freaked out. I'm like, I don't even know you anymore. But I like hard <laughs> rock. I like, I like the metal. It took a while for GNR to grow on me, but that record is everything. It's essential. Forget about it, man. When I, I used to, I used to buy you know a cassette tape and then listen to the songs and rate them from one to ten, so I could talk to my friends about it. Every song on that is a ten. You don't even have to hear it a second time. It's amazing from start to finish. And you know what? I'm not a huge fan of just listening to recorded live music. There's a few exceptions, obviously. Peter Frampton, you know, owned the world based on one live or two live songs. Um, for me, my personal favorite will always be Iron Maiden Live After Death is just incredible. But a lot of times I don't like it because I love perfection. I love crystal clear. I love overproduced I love everything to sound amazing so I can turn it up louder and louder and louder. But Guns N' Roses live at the Ritz <laughs> on video, the sound, Axel's the sights, teased out. and every fucking song is ridiculous. It is the definition of the word raw and it is the coolest fucking thing I've ever seen and they are the coolest fucking band. They, they were such game changers. Lyrics that stood out, the uh, night train when this this man, like, you don't even know who this man is. He's screaming, take your credit card to the liquor store. 17-year-old Aaron was like, oh. I do need to take my I think card. I need to <laughs> command my woman to take the credit card to the liquor store. But also, It's So Easy is probably the, the, the toughest, hippest song I've ever, I, you know. Sure. I can't even. Number six so on the list everything. from 1984 is Easy Top Legs. Well, thirteen-year-old Aaron, you want to go first? <laughs> you know, we oh, ZZ Top videos from Eliminator were something that you cra- you waited, you waited, you waited to see the girls, you waited to see that awesome car. I say awesome a lot. I know it's such an easy song, but it that car was that car was cool. The girls were cool. Little do you know that this band that's been around since 1972, you know, has some of the coolest tunes that aren't on Eliminator. Yeah. Uh, I I loved everything about that era, ZZ Top, the yeah. the the keychains and the little stories in their videos and the spinning of the guitars, yeah. and the way the guys just looked like these big mountain men, but played really cool kick-ass riffs. He, I think he's underrated as a singer. Not that he holds these huge, long, powerful notes, but that he's one of the few artists you can say is so unique. Nobody else sounds like him. And it's just he's got a really cool vibe to his voice. But them as a band, 
They're amazing. They were one of the coolest things in the mid '80s, and they were pretty old already. Yeah, and they had, and they were already established and kind of had their pocket. And that's one that MTV made relevant again. Um, but yeah, the car was cool and and it was fun. Musically, sadly, they they took a departure. When you see ZZ Top now, they're back to that three piece. They they you know with that '80s sound, they brought the synthesizers. It was a kind of a, a bit of a little downward spiral in my opinion spiral in my opinion the uh two records they put on out after that very 80s big electronic drums do do either of departure. you know, do, do either of you know the biggest piece of trivia about ZZ Top I do Go ahead. Uh, it was a Gillette offering them. No, 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 no. No, it's specific to the band. Okay, I, I would say the only guy in the band without a beard's last name is Beard. Yeah, absolutely. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Beard. But yeah, oh, yeah. They, um, the, the only time I've seen them live, it was just the three of them, and it was how you'd want to see them. And and I can attest they're excellent. I saw the Black Crows open up for them the night they got kicked off to the Miller Lite tour. That was a Rock 102 outing. There nice. you go. Oh yeah, met Chris Robinson ten minutes after he got ripped a new one by the tour man. Manager. Perfect. For the Poor rest guy. of your life, you can say I was there. Oh yeah, it was good times. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this one number five at you, Aaron. Um, being a musician now, before I get to that, um, <clears throat> I think back to kind of a peek behind the curtain of the life of a musician. And the first thing I think of is the Loadout by Jackson Brown. Well, what a great song that is. And one of my personal favorite artists, Bob Seger, uh, Turn the Page. I think the 80s generation version of that, specifically because of the video, was number five, Bon Jovi, Wanted Dead or Alive. Absolutely. Great imagery, you know. They, they show a little, you know, that, that tour life. And uh, they give, any video that had that in there was like, you know, whether they're loading in the gear at soundcheck, you know, you're seeing them in their element without the thousands of people sure. around. It's funny. They do black and white and then the slew of black and white. Tesla does acoustic. Everyone, yeah. imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but it didn't take much for everybody to jump on, but not everybody could pull it off. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's a handful of songs that evoke emotion in me every time I hear them, and that is one of them. Um it's probably my favorite song to be drunk and do backing vocals to, uh, as long as no one can hear me. But the emotion from start to finish, that is one of the most perfect songs I've ever heard. It's amazing. It's slow and it's hard and it's emotional, but it's still rocking and it is just a masterpiece. It's right that you say that that song has so much dynamic build. Bring it, brings it up, brings it down. That's a featured song in the Max Tone Rockstar Karaoke Show. Fantastic. And there's nothing better than when someone sings on key and I can provide those sweet harmonies. And it, it's just great when they're they're in key. Oh. And it's one of, one of my favorites to actually play with the band. Yeah. I, I When that one comes on the radio or if I'm in a bar and there's a cover band playing that song, man, I, I, it really just brings me back. Yeah. I, I, love, I love that song. So number four is one of my favorite bands of all time, and I like the song at the time, and if I hear it now, I will look for the closest, rustiest, serrated knife and put it in my eyes after I pop my own eardrums. Now, who I have to blame for that is every drunk woman at a wedding the last 30 minutes they come up and they ask for Bon Jovi uh, living on a prayer. Of course. They ask for Journey, Don't Stop Believing. 
And Def Leppard, pour some sugar on me at number four. Yeah. Go ahead. It's the only Def Leppard song that I hate. We've we had to come to hate it. I, listen, I got hysteria the week it came out. I mean, I was on my second cassette copy by the time they re-released re-released Animal. Animal was the you know Animal Women. They they really. It's crazy how much they juiced out of that record. Pour Some Sugar On Me was the coolest tune at one point for me. For me. And then here we are. Def Leppard is a rock band. They're a hair metal band. They're a hard rock band. And that is a dance song. That is a pop Absolutely. song. That is just – it's it, – it to me, I didn't like it the first time I heard it. And I've liked it less every time since. That's <laughs> not to knock anybody. It's personal taste. Sure. But I will say it sounds to me like a hard rock band got together and said – we need money. Let's try to write a hit instead of trying to write something we like. Oh, and, I, and I really believe that's how it comes across. Um, for me, Pyromania <laughs> is the fucking greatest. And the album before it, I'm sorry, the name escapes my mind because I'm high and dry. in my high and dry. 50s now. You, you got me running off of uh, High and Dry is my favorite Def Leppard song. I could have pulled that name out a thousand times, but my brain is just, you know, I'm getting older. Mm -hmm. But let me tell you something. Those two Def Leppard albums oh, yeah. to this day, as far as that genre goes, they kick ass. Once they got into Hysteria... They started to lose me a little bit because it became more poppy. I don't hate it, but I'm not rushing out to listen to it. When they play the songs from Hysteria live, it's excellent. I sing along. I enjoy the hell out of it. But Pyromania is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, hair metal band of all time. Singing, I'm sorry, hair metal album of all time. Rock of Ages, singing Rock of Ages is such fun. Please. It's, sure. un, it's yeah, if you, you any any top 40 band, throw, throw in Rock of Ages to heck with fooling. Oh, so it's, it's, well, rock, rock, it's well, well, well past the 80s bedtime. So we've talked a lot about the number three, two, and one, and it's not going to surprise you. Number three, Dire Straits, Money for Nothing. Number two, Peter Gabriel, Sledge and number one Michael Jackson thriller. So 80s, get to bed. You have school in the morning. We're going to move on to a little bit of the 90s. All well deserved. Yeah. All right. So we've certainly talked about uh, what we're referring to as watershed moments in the history of MTV and music. You know, we talked a lot about the thriller video. We talked about the impact of the VJs and songs like Money for Nothing. And, you know, to go back to thriller, that was still in the context of the catalog of Michael Jackson, an established artist since the Jackson 5, since he was young. I, I'd like to get a little bit of commentary on the events of September 29th, 1991, because something happened that caused such a seismic shift worldwide that it, it changed the face of music forever. And to any male who owned a can of Aquanet, he made you unemployed, and that was the day Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit video premiered on MTV's 120 Minutes. Uh, in the years that followed, it would come to signify the beginning of rock's great renaissance and usher in a cultural shift that would really define a generation. Nirvana led a sweeping transition into the rise of alternative rock and grunge music on MTV with their video for Smells Like Teen Spirit, 
by late 91 going into 92, MTV began frequently airing videos from their heavily promoted buzz bin. And in addition to Nirvana, they started playing into heavy rotation up-and-coming artists and established ones such as Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, Nine Inch Nails. Let's hear what you guys got to say about that. The grunge. I mean... (laughs) I remember, I remember Brett Michaels uh, in some interview complaining about <laughs> about you know and then these guys came along and uh, my career's in the toilet. Not, not really, just they had to take a little break. It, completely different sound. It was uh, different. It didn't sound like commercial. It didn't sound mainstream. They weren't trying. They were being themselves. You know, Allison Chains, amazing. And now, if you look at you know. Shots of them from the '80s. They were a little, little more Alice in Chains, you know. They were, they were kind of a bit of the glam thing, and then they they tightened that up for you know the '90s. Pearl Jam. I, I to this day that that band blows my mind. I, I don't know what to say. You know, ten. Forget about it. Another album beginning to end. Every track. Every Sick. track. Porch is probably my favorite. Sure. Yeah. So good. Very true. Um, again, I think I was late to I was late to the party um, with a lot of that. I, you know, I was still, I've always been a classic rock man. Um, first time I heard the, the the song "Sex Type Thing" by STP, I was I I was a little put off. Obviously, it's subject matter. I was like, eh. then I heard "Plush." And that song is beautiful. Sure, yeah, one of my favorites of Lush. all time. Yeah, I love singing that song. But that recorded version, the layers of guitar, um, and you know all these amazing rock bands that it wasn't, you know, ain't nothing but a good time. You know, mm-hmm. it, these, these people were singing songs from their souls. I, I don't think the glam metal era, you know, it kind of lost that, you know, cherry um, pie. I mean, sh- right. sure. <laughs> um, you're never going to get even close to a decent replacement for a lead singer for Stone Temple Pilots, for Lincoln Park, for Soundgarden. Sean and I have talked about this a lot, and it might be a future subject, and we'd love to have you back talking about music, is about some bands like ACDC can make a seamless transition when you change lead singers. Van Others, cl- close, sure. close up the shop. Yeah. Cl- close up the shop. It, it's it's never going to happen, and anything you do is going to be a knockoff. I feel that way about Queen. I am in the minority about that. I, I I can see what you're saying, but the alternative is to just not see Queen live anymore. So, so many big fans <laughs> will go just to experience it because it's that or nothing. But I don't think there's anybody on the planet who's saying he's as good. I haven't seen it. I'm not, I'm not speaking against what you're saying. But in that case, it's not like Freddie's out there and we just wish these guys would right. get along. There's nothing it, they can it, do. It's this right. or nothing kind right. of a thing. And, and Adam and Lambert so, can sing. Sure. That kid's got pipes all oh, day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, for me, the grunge thing, you know, it, it's interesting because when it happened, I didn't really know what was happening. I knew it was right. some new, cool, hard rock bands. I knew that I liked a lot of it. I didn't realize it was the end of something else in the beginning of this because I just liked music and I just liked hard rock. And to me, it was something new and and a little bit different. Um, you see the transitions. In the earlier 80s, it was kind of still classic rock. And then even some of the just true metal bands. And what I mean by just true metal, I mean your Sabbath, your Maiden, your Dio, your Priest. And then that started to wane with hair metal. Okay. Mm-hmm. And hair metal became huge. It was everything in the hard rock metal genre. 
and it was really sustained. And there was one band that was a bridge between hair metal and grunge, and that was Guns N' Roses. Because they're heavier than hair metal, but they're nothing like grunge. They're just kind of a kick-ass, hard, hard rock band, and they were kind of the bridge. Now, what was going on in a more underground thing in the mid to late 80s was speed metal was becoming gigantic. And four bands in particular were Metallica, Slayer, Megadeth, and Anthrax. And they were really huge for about a half a decade. And grunge punched hair metal in the face, punched speed metal in the face, and took over the world. But there is one exception, and it's glaring. And that exception is metal fans are always going to be hungry for metal, and they're always going to give something a chance, even if other people tell them it's dead. And one of the most gigantic bands of the early to mid-90s is Pantera and their thrash and their speed metal. And they came at the same time or even a little bit after grunge, and they had huge success. So oh, they are kind of – Kick you in the ding-ding, man. Oh, oh, yeah. Those guys are the <laughs> exception to the rule. They, they, they joined the scene after it was announced that the scene was dead. You know, Guns N' Roses, it's funny. You're right. The bridge, they had such a punk aesthetic. Absolutely. You know, like, fuck you. I don't care about you. Their attitude and some of their music, yeah. you know. Like, oh, it's so easy. Please. That's so good. Oh, I see you standing there. Yeah. You think you're so cool. Why don't you just? Fuck off. Yeah, man. A- a- anyone who heard that was like, yes. Yes to this all day. Yeah. And even musically, you know, Guns N' Roses sent a glaring message to the kind of 80s metal you know you hear stories of how bands were put together on a shoestring your your wingers your warrants and we'll teach you how to play later i remember one of the saddest things i ever saw um and i was into them at the time was it was a kind of um vh1 special on where they now and behind the music and it was on warrant and you just saw Janie lane looking into the camera and he's like the day before album release they said we are moving Cherry Pie to the name of the album, to your lead single, and you are going to go play it at radio stations for the next six months. And it turned into a circus. Every radio station, hey, the wacky morning DJs, we've got a cherry pie. You've got to eat her a cherry pie. Hi, 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 hi. He just he oh. just turned with this sullen face to the camera and he goes, I wish I never wrote that fucking song. Sure. I can relate. <laughs> yeah. His, his, poor bank, man. his bank account's glad that Certainly he did. did not. I saw, I saw Warren in Springfield, one of our – Saw him in big... Westfield. <laughs> oh, you were yeah. at that show. Yeah. Uh, Bentley's, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. They, they, you know, it, a lot of bands hung in there and now there's nothing – it's a glam metal uh, renaissance or a resurgence. It's like look at uh, Def Leppard, Poison, Motley Crue. Joan, Joan Jett and Motley Crue. Yep. Is that the big mega tour coming yes. out? Yes. Yep. Yeah, hmm, we're supposed to, to go to that. Yeah, and uh, we'll see what what happens next year. So, did Motley Crue sign documents stating they they, would never... they had a ceremonial thing where they okay. blew it up with dynamite or something oh, like that? Oh, okay. There was an agreement. All four guys had to agree to come out of retirement, okay. or none could. Okay, good. So that's how it went right. down, and that went around 2015. Yeah, and in 19, they all four agreed. Just nobody's told to Mark back yet. up the Brinks truck. It just breaks my heart to see Jack Russell's great white, Stephen yes. Percy's rat. Yes, yeah. yes. It's for, yeah. for me, the the glaring example of exactly what you're talking about is there's two Queensrikes on tour. There is. Yeah, there's Jeff Tate 
of yeah. Queensryche with the a voice. different band, and then all the members with who I understand is as a very amazing younger singer. You don't see me, you know, singing for REM. It's like Peter Buck's REM featuring <laughs> Aaron Faye. <laughs> but you know what, dude? Cause you, cause could, I, uh, you could because you're awesome. Oh, right? you're sweet. I love that Aaron brought up the fact that Guns N' Roses t- to him has a punk influence because I think the term rock and roll slash rock star is thrown around a lot and it means something different to a lot of people. To some people, it's Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry and to other people, you know, it means different things. To me, rock star is more about an attitude than the music itself. And people that come to mind for me are like Keith Richards, Steven Tyler, okay? Where they hold themselves. These guys are rock stars. It's Aerosmith when they were a hard rock band in their earlier days. And I think Guns N' Roses really revived that 70s, late 70s rock star attitude mm-hmm. and that Great. whole thing. Where it just gives you this vibe like these guys could have been a band in the 70s. These guys could have been a band in the 80s and they could have been a band in the 90s. They had the attitude of the rock star, the little bit edgier, more raw, and and also just the F you like a punk band. Yeah. And, and I just think that's really cool. And, and whatever rock star means to you, to me, it's, you know, it's the Tylers, it's the Guns N' Roses, it's that kind of – kind of thing where the, there's there's heavier bands, there's middle-of-the-road bands, and there's mellower bands music-wise, but it really is about the fucking attitude. Cameron Crowe, I think, nailed it in the movie Almost Famous. I was watching it this morning. It's the, it, Jeff Beebe, you know, the, the first interview and the kid sneaks back, they're opening up for Led Zeppelin, and I swear to God, it, it, I, it feels like the Cameron Crowe got in my head. The things that Jason Lee as Jeff Beebe, the lead singer of Stillwater... The things he says, you know, I find the one guy that's not getting off and I make him get off. That you can print. I'm like, I've said that. I, I, I. But um, when he when he says, what is the definition of rock? And I'm like, well, here I am. And if you, I, if you don't like it, then fuck you. To me, that's 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 the punk thing. I, I had it on this morning while I was setting up for today. Remember the scene uh, when they're talking to the guy that wants to be their new manager and saying. That's Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I love it. If you think Mick Jagger, isn't it? And there he is, See, still doing me, it. Me rudely interrupting you spawned all of Sorry, this, yeah, and, and it'll probably make the podcast. Listen, I didn't, I didn't create the rainy day. I just had the biggest umbrella. That's all. <laughs> yeah. So, so if we, you know, despite uh, the resurgence of of rock and Nirvana and things like that, there's still not much of a place for actual music videos and MTV at the time around '92, and it really was the birth of reality TV. When they debuted the first reality show, The Real World, and subsequently Road Rules, um, and it, which led to comedy and dramas, which were scripted and, and sometimes improvised, and comedy originals. Growing up in the early 90s, to that generation, it meant The Real World, Road Rules, Beavis and Butthead, Singled Out, Club MTV, Remote Control, House of Style, The Ben Stiller Show, Love Line, and The Jenny McCarthy Show. I mean, for a generation that was just getting into the stride of Simpsons mania in the 90s, to have such an alternative choice such as Beavis and Butthead, night and day, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I like comedy that pushes the envelope. I don't like the sleazy or the cheesy stuff that they're doing just to get ratings on the channel. But I love the comedy that that really can push the envelope because they're a cable channel, not a network. So for me... 
Beavis and Budhead and Jackass have given me so many hours of entertainment and even influenced my comedy in a way where I just know that you can push the envelope if you take the time to make it clever and creative and you figure out a way because funny is funny. And uh, those two shows are fucking funny. Beavis and Butthead, cultural phenomenon. I mean, it's millions of people trying to do the voices. And, you know, the subject matter was great. That's where I discovered the band Ween. They were making fun of one of their videos. Sure. And, you know, these guys are stupid. <laughs> you know, and it, it's hilarious. Uh, so sometimes the jokes were funny. Sometimes they weren't. Uh, I remember before I really had the opportunity to switch to digital and mixing DJing, one of my little CD mixing was there was an actual Beavis and Butthead soundtrack, and it was just them kind of going back and forth talking before it went into like a song by Cher. And I would play that, and people would look at me and be like, why are we listening to Beavis and Butthead? And I would do this predominantly at school dances, not so much at weddings, <laughs> and immediately overlap it into Loser by Beck and just frenzy, roof blown off the place. Nice. Uh, sound, sound clips were, were, are great for DJing and Beavis and Butthead. Oh, yeah. When you can get your hands on those. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it adds some fun to, and some atmosphere to the evening. Sure. Cool. Absolutely. So we jump ahead to the late 90s, 97. MTV introduces its new studio in Times Square. They created four shows in the late 1990s that centered on music videos. MTV Live, Total Request, Say What, and 12 Angry Viewers. A year later, in 98, they merged a couple of them, Total Request and MTV Live, into a daily top 10 countdown show, Total Request Live, known to that generation as TRL. Original host, those of you that watch The Voice would know this, Carson Daly. Uh, that generation came home from school, much like we did, 10 years earlier, except now they're coming home to see the latest videos from Britney Spears and Sync, Spice Girls, Puff Daddy, Backstreet Boys, and Christina Aguilera. There was also another resurgence of rock music and videos in the late 90s, led by such bands as Linkin Park, Korn, Stained, Limp Bizkit, Green Day, Godsmack, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Foo Fighters. And it's just, we've been good throughout this whole podcast. It's time for a shameless plug, because on some level, everyone here knows Stained. It's funny, you mentioned uh, Pearl Jam earlier. The first time I ever heard Pearl Jam was Aaron Lewis at our little local place. He played this amazingly cool tune, and I had to work up the nerve to ask my old friend, uh, dude, what, what song was that? And he goes, that was Alive. Who does that? That's Pearl Jam, you dummy. He looked like me. I was an asshole. <laughs> and I was an asshole because I never heard of Pearl Jam, so I went out and bought the record the next day, and I was, like I said, slightly behind the curve then. And, uh, you know, and... I knew I knew the second I I was in my car on my way to a gig and I heard it's been a while and I said this is gonna be huge and it was yeah for me I mean the almost every band you just named is what I what I would label as the family values type music because they sure. used to do a, a festival tour family it's all, it's values all in the and family most of those bands were that and uh, it was just cool music for the time that transcended. Rock, hard rock, and maybe some metal into the next decade. And uh, I liked most of the bands that you were just naming. Um, I feel like it became a style of doom and gloom with the lyrics and depression, and a whole generation kind of really took hold of that. And it became almost a culture thing with black fingernails and dark clothes and the black chain. makeup. And it was. Wallet. It was cool to be depressed and it was cool to be angry and it was cool to be sad 
and cool to be pessimistic about the world. And uh, that music kind of carried that through. And yes, you just asked for some shameless plugs of knowing Stained. I was working as a cook in a bar in West Springfield, Massachusetts, and a kid was singing for a band called The Geckos. The Geckos, that was the band. He had black curly hair. I think he was 19 years old, so he couldn't even drink when he got off stage. And they were playing, and the band was all right, and the singer was amazing. And I looked at somebody, and I said, I've always had an ear for music. I'm a way bigger music fan than your average person you're going to meet. And that kid's voice is gold. And if he ever surrounded himself with the right musicians, he's got a real shot of becoming a superstar someday. And that was when Aaron Lewis was 19 years old singing cover songs with the Geckos. And yeah. uh, and he was actually a pretty cool, quiet, shy guy. And every time they played there, I got to know him and it turned into him doing acoustic solo stuff on Wednesday nights for about $200 with a partner and cut to 10 years later and he was doing acoustic solo shows at Mohegan Sun by himself and getting about $50,000 a night. He's done very well for himself. Yeah. And you know what? He deserves it. Absolutely. So to give you all out there some context to all of our shameless name dropping, uh, we all we all cut our teeth as entertainers, as friends at, at, at a bar. I'm going to go ahead and name, even though most of you might not be aware, it was called Breakers Billiards. Then it was called Breakers in West Springfield, Massachusetts. And here's what you could see uh, really shortly before they broke with their first album. Uh, you could go see Sean and or myself doing stand-up comedy one night, maybe a Monday or a Tuesday. Aaron Lewis playing acoustic to Wednesday was kind of an industry night for people that worked in the industry. It was their Friday, Saturday night. But it's not a stretch to say there could sometimes be 15 people, sometimes 20, but that was a busy night. And Aaron would just kind of go up and sing. When he wasn't singing, he'd want to talk about hunting or other stuff really down to earth. The next night, you could go and see me DJing and playing club music. And the next night, depending on how busy they were, the original drummer for Stain, John Waisaki, would either be the bar back or he would be the bouncer if somebody called out. And we're talking right before they got discovered by Fred Durst. And I remember going to a Blockbuster video in my hometown to get some videos. And as I go to the checkout, nobody knew it. Word was never said. Stained was on the cover of Rolling Stone for the first time. And I bought all of them and brought them back to Breakers for the owners. And people were just crying for their happiness and success. So if if you kind of want to know, hey, we love this band, and we want to know what they're really like. They truly deserved every single ounce of success they ever had. They worked their asses off. I mean, this it's a great. I, in fact, they had to cancel a local gig. I remember the band I was in at the time, the New Wave Tribute Band. We took their gig at one of the local downtown Springfield mega club places, so they could drive in their band van to Florida, to Jacksonville, to Fred's place. I, legend has it they broke down a hundred miles from the Florida border and had to get towed the rest of the way. They made, they cut the demo and the rest is history. Those guys were really driven. You know, they they didn't have a plan B. They they were going <laughs> to give it everything they got. And I I remember uh, John Wysocki, the drummer, as a teenager. We had mutual friends. We ended up hanging out and partying together for years, long before Stained was ever even a thought. And I, I also remember. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. I also remember. Uh, 
I believe it was Aaron who came up to me and said, yeah, I'm putting together a new project. We're going to be called Stained. I got some really good musicians from around the area. Maybe you want to come check out our first show. And I went to the Infinity Rock Club in Springfield and got to see Stained's very first live show they've ever done. That band, even as a club act, playing covers, they came out like a national act. In fact, I've never seen Stained. Other than the last time I saw them was before they broke huge. It was the Geraldine stage in West Springfield on a Sunday night. And I've never seen them in an arena, but they came out. They come out and they blow everyone away. The musicianship, their energy always had. They were kind enough to have me open for them. I did a close to a 30-minute stand-up comedy set and nobody was there to see me, but it was just cool exposure. It went over very well, and uh, to this day, one of, if not the biggest regret in my comedy career is that I didn't get it on video because the way I ended my set that night was I asked the band during rehearsals if I could come up and do Wild Thing at the end of my set as a tribute to Kinnison, and everyone said yes except for Mike, the guitar player. He wasn't rude about it. He just said, I don't want to play it wrong, and I don't have time to just learn it you know, in a couple of hours, and Aaron said, no problem, I'll play guitar. So Aaron Lewis played guitar, Johnny April on bass, John Wysocki on drums, and myself dressed up as Kinnison, and I was really fat and had the long hair at that's the time, awesome. and we did Wild Thing together, and I would give anything for a video of that. At the time, that's the funniest part of that whole story. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the look. I, so, I, t- I took over that acoustic gig, by the way, when he went off and became famous. Mm-hmm. That, I, I remember because that's that's yeah. when I stopped going to Breakers on Wednesdays. As you should. I mean, geez, just the quality of entertainment went downhill. <laughs> what are you going to do? Well, I came once and did a magic trick, and you said I wasn't welcome back anymore. <laughs> well, it involved your penis. <laughs> In the bathroom at 3 a.m. I, I, I made it disappear, didn't I? <laughs> Dude, the, the basement of Breakers? Sketchy. Oy vey. <laughs> so, you know, for anyone who grew up in the 2000s, you know, fast-forwarding a few more years later, memories of MTV come back to that generation from shows such as The Osbournes, Jackass, The Tom Green Show, Punked, Parental Control, Newlyweds with Nick Lachey and Jessica Simpson, Laguna Beach, My Super Sweet 16, Making the Band, The Hills, Viva La Bam, Jersey Shore, MTV Cribs, Nick Cannon's Wild and Out, and Pimp My Ride. Any favorites in there? Pit My Ride was cool. It was, man. I like Pit My Ride. Uh, I'm not a really Pit My Ride kind of dude, but uh, I like Pit My Ride. I will say this for the record. I never got Tom Green. I, I never saw the fascination with him. Sure. I thought his I, comedy I was pedestrian and, and just plain old dumb. I'm so sorry if I offend anyone, especially you, sir. Art is subjective, man. I mean, yeah. I love Tom Green except for when he made the movie called Freddy Got Fingered. That was dumb. It was horrible because the whole thing with Tom Green was I'm playing a practical joke on someone and they're not in on it. And therein lies the humor. The movie was actors and actresses playing out what it would be like if they were getting fooled and they had a script. Now cut to years later and Sasha Baron Cohen got it right because even when he puts out movies – doesn't matter if you hate them or love them. The formula is correct. The people in his movies do not know that they're in on a joke, and that's why it works. Hmm. Tom Green's show, no one knew they were in on it. 
I thought he was hilarious. I thought he had huge balls. If he did 90% of those things to me, I would have punched him in his face. <laughs> Precisely. And there were times where I got angry and annoyed Precisely. putting myself in the shoes oh, yeah. of the victim. But I was endlessly entertained by just his goofy, horrible, sophomoric silliness. Mm -hmm. um, but boy, that movie was just wrong in every way. The concept itself just is illogical. Right. So, you know, here we are. Jump to current day. Today, if you ask a 16-year-old about MTV, they might be shocked to know they ever showed anything other than nonstop marathons of ridiculousness. Between reality, comedy, scripted, news, competition, talk, and animated shows, MTV has produced over 350 programs and shows over its nearly 40-year history in the United States alone, never mind its international presence, showing its ability to change with the times as well as tastes of its broad and now worldwide audience. And really, as we come to closing out the show, each generation of MTV viewers has its watershed moments that to a degree define each generation, from the 1985 Live Aid concert to Nirvana's masterpiece performance on MTV Unplugged, to Kanye West hijacking Taylor Swift's award, to the three-way kiss between Madonna, Britney Spears, and Christina Aguilera. Each holds a distinct memory for every teen of those respective generations. Today's podcast special wasn't about deciding which generational version of MTV was the greatest, or to regurgitate that old tagline, I remember when MTV used to show actual music videos. Every generation throughout the history of time looks back on their youth with reverence and sentiment of a simpler, carefree time, while at the same time lamenting the perceived lack of respect, discipline, values, and work ethic of the current generation of youth. Eventually, you know what? We all grow old enough to utter the phrase, these kids today. That cycle has repeated itself over and over, but at the end of the day, we were all once 16 years old. And while the favorite bands and song titles or channel programs differ for every single person, MTV has meant something to everyone for nearly 40 years, and that's what we looked at today. Now, we've got a little bonus for you at the end of the show because we have Aaron, and it's just such a pleasure to have him. He's been so great that we're going to have a, a little bit of a segment before I ask some questions at the end to, to Sean and Aaron. And uh, for lack of a better term, I... I titled this section, There Goes My Hero, and, and, and that's from the Foo Fighters, and I think to their song these days, and the opening lines is, one of these days, the ground will drop out from beneath your feet. One of these days, your heart will stop and play its final beat. So our generation recently lost Eddie Van Halen. We can't comprehend what it was like when Elvis died. We can't comprehend what it was like when John Lennon died because of where we were at that time. But kind of what I'm looking for you guys is really some some raw emotion because I didn't get into this too much. But what happens to us and how do we face our mortality when we start to outlive our heroes? Now, let me run through this list. And these are the ages of some of the artists out there. Robert Plant, Led Zeppelin, 72. Ozzy Osbourne, 71. Steven Tyler, Aerosmith, 72. Stevie Nicks, 72. Pat Benatar, 67. Madonna, 62. David Lee Roth, 65. Bono, 60. James Hetfield of Metallica, 57. Bruce Springsteen, 71. John Bon Jovi, 58. Steve Perry, 71. Brian Johnson of ACDC, 73. Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden, 62. David Gilmore, 74 from Pink Floyd. Rob Halford, 69. Billy Idol, 64. Sammy Hagar, 72. 
Getty Lee of Rush, 67. And we just lost a, a great band member from that band who will never play again. Paul Stanley of Kiss, 68. Billy Joel, 71. Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top, 70. David Coverdale from Whitesnake, 69. Gene Simmons of Kiss, 71. Brett Michaels, 57. Angus Young from ACDC, 65. Stephen Piercy of Rat, 64. Tom Kiefer, 59. Mick Mars, 69. I could go on and on. We're, we're, it, it's just going to be a matter of time or quickly or in groups. We're, we're just going to lose these heroes, and we're all getting older. Kind of, I'm just looking for a little unfiltered commentary from either of you on this and both of you. So for me, there's a difference when we lose uh, an idol or a hero at a young age versus an old age. Of course, they're both sad, but when you lose somebody age 70 or older – you're usually not left wondering what if, where where would they be now? What would they be doing now? Nobody knows if Jimi Hendrix would have went on to put out 15 or 20 of the most amazing experimental rock albums with innovative guitars or if he would have simply faded and become something less than what he's known as, or just kind of somewhere in between. But I think we can all guess that he would have been legendary and he would have had more innovations, more creativity, and more influence. Now, when we lose someone in their 70s, it's sad and the music will live on, but we're not left wondering what if. So as these people are aging, it's also us aging and and we start to look into ourselves and we start to reflect And we start to realize, hey, I'm not 15 years old anymore. I'm not 29 years old anymore. I personally am 52 years old right now. Some days my body feels like it's 200 and my mind and my sense of humor feels like it's 21. But the reality is I'm on the back nine of life and uh, I got to face it whether I like it or not. So as I see some of my heroes and idols passing away that aren't all that much older than me, it's scary, it's emotional, and it makes stuff really real. So you used Eddie Van Halen in the beginning. That guy was such a hero to me. I do feel like 65 feels like we lost him too young for a couple of reasons. With modern medicine and the expected lifespan in America, that is pretty young these days. It wasn't when I was a kid, but it is now. Not to mention... Eddie Van Halen was always running around. He was always jumping up and down, and he was always smiling. He was full of happiness. He was full of energy. He truly loved what he did, and his face with that smile looked the same today as it did when he was just first bursting onto the scene, and I think he loved music just as much up to his last breath. You know, when I hear an old classic Van Halen song on the radio, for five minutes, I'm 15 years old again. I'm buying a brand new cassette tape down at the local record store, and I'm waiting in line at midnight to be able to buy it because there is no internet and there is no streaming, and I'm going to race home with it. And I'm going to open it up and I'm going to play it from start to finish. And I'm going to read every single lyric on the sleeve. 
and I'm going to read the liner notes. I'm going to know the producer's name. I'm going to know who mixed it, and I'm going to know who each member of the band thanked. And then I'm going to turn it over and start it again and read all the words until I pass out from exhaustion. And no kid from the new generation will ever experience that again as long as they live. All four years of high school, I wrote the VH on my book covers. I wrote it on my desk. I did that. I had a science teacher named Mr. Kid. <laughs> and I sat at a desk, bored out of my mind in his class. And he wasn't a boring teacher. I was just a daydreamer. And I wrote, Dear Mr. Kid, Thanks for all the rockin' times, Eddie Van Halen. And I did it because I was the class clown and an idiot and for no other reason than I was bored. And the next day I came in and underneath it, written in marker was, Dear Sean, thanks for the laughs, Mr. Kid. And that blew my mind. He could have given me a detention. He could have sent me to the principal. But he just understood that I entertained him and he wrote back to me. And from then on, I paid a little bit more attention in his class. And I actually, for the first time, thought maybe teachers could be pretty cool people. Uh, I'm kind of going off on a tangent, so I'll sum it up by saying when we lose these artists, we didn't know them personally. It's not the same as when we lose a family member. Right. It's yeah. not the same as when we lose a pet. So I guess what I'm trying to say is when we lose our heroes, it's sad because we had a passion for their art. It's sad because we have to face our own mortality and that of those that we love and care about. Yeah. Final words, Aaron? I tell you, the, the, Eddie Van Halen was uh – uh. That was a big one. Uh, I cried as well. My girlfriend comes into our room. I'm at my desk and I've got Van Halen on and she's like, oh, I'm like, yeah. And, you know, it's it's so many memories. You know, in fact, I'm, I'm in a Facebook argument on a, a, a forum about, you know, favorite uh, Van Halen record. And of all the uh, – because of this, this was coming up this week. I was feeling very nostalgic. I picked 5150. Now, 5150, start of the Sammy era. One of the few bands back-to-back that they can do huge blockbuster records with two different singers, Back in Black, Highway to Hell with ACDC, 1984, 5150. That was big for my teenage years. I was starting to drive. I was starting to do this and do that, you know, summer nights in the radio. You know, it was big for me. And so, yeah, Eddie was was a huge part of the soundtrack of our life. And, and you know, if you, if you liked hard rock and you didn't like Van Halen, I don't know, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, you were on a different planet. And and, and so what I, what I love is that, you know, I love 99% of that man's work. You know, there's one record that I don't care for, and that's Van Halen 3, of course. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm grateful that I didn't see Jimi Hendrix. I didn't grow up to see this rock legend make bad records. I'm glad that, you know, we look at this list – at the top here, Robert Plant, 72 years old. I'm glad this man isn't going to do a Led Zeppelin reunion because Percy probably doesn't have it in him to hit those notes anymore. And he knows that. And, and he probably hasn't for a long and, time. And, and, and he knows that. And look, look what he's done lately, you know, more of a folky country kind of uh, vibe. And I'll always remember Robert Plant as such then. You know, I won't remember him. He, he's the man. He's the golden god. Same thing with Ozzy. Ozzy doesn't put out bad music. Am I a big fan of Steven Tyler's, you know, last three Aerosmith records? Nah. But, you know, Toys in the Attic, you know. Sure. It's, it's So I'm grateful that 
you're right. We we are experiencing. Brett Michaels, 57. Yikes. That's not that much older than us. But he's okay. He had, he had a health scare, if you recall. Yeah, his, but he's been balder longer. I was going to say his two pages turned four. My <laughs> word. I have such respect for, you know, um, as, you know, a former Lothario uh, that <laughs> – Brett Michaels went on went on TV and did the Rock of Love where he could have sex with twenty women and no one thought he was a cad. Yeah, like yeah, right. he explained it. it made more women like him. It, it, crazy, and then he won The Apprentice. What? Like those serial killers who get letters in jail from women who want to marry him <laughs> who have never met him. I mean, did anyone really? And we don't want to see any of our heroes pass on. But did anyone put it better than Def Leppard and Neil Young? Better to burn out than to fade away. I, those exact words were in my head. Uh, as as Sean was was uh, talking just a few moments ago, it's better to burn out than to fade away, and so many of the good ones did. Think about the people that have been lost in the industry: Janis Joplin, Randy Rhodes. I mean, it, it's just <laughs> Randy's life. That's that was wrong. Yeah, and, and uh, boy, Cliff Burton. I remember so being you know in tenth grade at high school in high school, and when Cliff Burton, the news that he had died in that that accident on the bus. That was, that was a big one hearing that. I didn't know – and I didn't know Cliff Burton, the bass player from Metallica from the next guy. It wasn't until later. I mean you see this man's genius. That, that guy was talented. Agreed. And yeah. he was the driving force in yeah. the band up until that yeah. happened. And, uh, the best musician in that group at the and, time. And also, you know, it's such a tragedy. Like you never want to say – Somebody deserves it, but some of the things people do put themselves in a situation where they're more their percentages of facing yeah. a tragedy go up. All the guy was doing was sleeping on his tour bus, sleeping on the bus, right. wasn't poisoning his body with alcohol or drugs. Yeah, you know. John Belushi, Chris Farley, right? Sure. Ugh. So you know, uh, like you guys, you obviously came to this well prepared, uh, and I can kind of multitask and I have separate windows open while I'm just playing 80s videos. I, I got on a thing where I was playing Van Halen videos and uh, the auto playlist went to some documentaries. I couple things. I was very surprised to know that 5150 was ready to record before Sammy was even in the picture. I'll, and it was, it was meant for Dave and they had their falling out. Nothing was changed. They're like, here's the songs. You're going to hit the notes different. But they basically, the minute he said, I'll do it, they recorded what was going to be the follow-up to 1984. I still think it's a great record. I liked every song on it. For, and, for and years was, and years, my passcode to old ATMs and yeah, lockers at school was 5150. Which is what the LAPD. California Penal Code for Criminally Insane. Very good. Yes. And that's Eddie, Eddie named his studio after that. Yes. So uh, are either of you familiar to kind of end on a, on a high note after bringing ourselves down a little bit before my last couple questions and we wrap up today's show? Uh, are you guys familiar with the famous Van Halen touring s uh, story about no M&M, no brown M&Ms? I do, actually. And a lot of people – was it so no brown M&Ms? This is specific now, as a musician. Okay. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Now, so you know the true story. I believe what I okay. So well, I, the reason why, right? So I want to set it up for you. So for those that don't know, when artists are going to perform, they have a part of their contract called a rider. So in the past, Madonna and Britney Spears have said, "I don't want to be in the belly of some old sixty-year-old arena. I want to be covered in white drapes and ivory and milk soap, and I want coconut and I want mm -hmm. papaya." And so they have things they add on. And you're an artist, you know. You get out of the show. There's certain things you like to eat. You want to have them prepared. It was for decades known that Van Halen had in their rider no brown M&Ms are to be backstage at concert. And everyone just saw them kind of as these big divas. And I, and I already know from looking at you, 
Aaron knows the true story of why they put in their rider, no brown M&Ms. Go ahead. And it's simply because if you're not reading that or not adhering to that, then you may not adhere to the fact that the stage requires a certain amount of weight to be held with their massive amounts of gear or the electrical requirements. And I, I'm not sure, was there an incident where the stage collapsed because yes. they did not read properly the technical rider? And and you know who was the brainchild of that? Probably who, David Lee Roth. David Lee Roth. Yeah. He was heavily involved in the stage production oh, of the yeah. shows. And for their third album tour, they were traveling with unheard of before LEDs, 850-plus parkan lights. Probably 64s, right? So when Huge. they would go backstage and he was thinking about the health and welfare of themselves and their entire crew, and if they saw brown M&Ms, first thing he would do is call the city inspector, electrical inspector, engineers, and have them come check anything before they would even plug in a guitar. Yeah, because if you're not paying attention to that... Or are you and you just don't give a damn? What else are you not giving a damn about? Yeah, he's basically checking the attention to detail to make sure that every single word was read. And it, it, it saddens me when people call David Lee Roth a buffoon. Sure, he's a buffoon, but that is that man is one of the smartest, most well-read gentleman buffoons you'll ever come across. Sure. I, he, he is the man. He's, I, sil- he's a silly clown, but he is the awesomest silly clown I on think, the planet. I think back to one of those VH1s um, behind the music and it was on Metallica and it talked about their eventual touring rift with Guns N' Roses sure. and how uh, Axl Rose, when he kind of started to lose it, accused them of being sellouts and he just looks right in the camera and the guy from Metallica says, and he was absolutely right, yeah. we sell out every stadium every time. Every seat. Yeah. Yep. yep. I love David Lee Ross, so you don't need to plead your case with me. I'm sure. a huge fan. I love the guy. I have a present company, of course. I mean, honestly, uh, in the conversation for greatest rock frontman. Easily. Yeah. yeah. Tough one. Yeah. So, you know, it's an understatement to say that we really had a blast today and with this with this whole segment on MTV. And it was so great to have Aaron here. And it really was a labor of love for Sean and myself to put this together as, as some of our opening episodes and really talk about something we had a lot of knowledge of. We hope you learned some cool trivia. We, we hope you laughed. We hope you, you learned some things. Um, now it's time to wrap up our show with kind of an end of our segment that I call None of Your Business. And what I do is I just ask two or three questions that none of my guests, including my co-host Sean, knows is going to be asked to kind of uh, just put them on the spot a little bit. And, and there's some softballs for you guys, but... Uh, question number one. We'll go to you, Aaron, first. What was the first album you ever owned? Aqualung, Jethro Tull. Uh, and it was. It was. It didn't even belong to me. It. Uh, my mother had a friend of hers storing some stuff in our basement, and I was snooping. And I had seen a live performance video of Aqualung, and I had just gotten a, a stereo with a uh, turntable, and I went down there, and the first record I pulled out was Aqualung, and I loved that record. Yeah. It came out in 1971, the year I was born. And just because my head is filled with gallons and tons of metric shit trivia that I shouldn't know, uh, the lead singer of Jethro Tull, his son-in-law is Andrew Lincoln, who plays Rick Grimes on The Walking Dead. Get out of here. Yeah. Really? Yeah, he's married to his daughter. That's awesome. Yep. Your first album, Sean. 
Well, as a kid, I, we shared albums as siblings, and I'm going all the way back to elementary school. Um, my mom was a big music fan, so we listened to a lot of music growing up, mostly Elvis Presley and a lot of other stuff. I remember as a family, as kids, we were so excited to get Michael Jackson off the wall. Huh. Or is that what it's called? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a and, good record. And, and I'm talking, you know, I, I might have been seven years old at the time, but we listened to it. We enjoyed it. I remember owning Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang, uh, playing that on the turntable. And then I cut to uh, being in middle school and our cousins as a family bought us as a family Journey Escape. Nice. And we listened to that and every song was great. But for me personally, I, I, I had so many at the same time when I first started to get into hard rock because I had an older sister who was dating a guy who was really into hard rock and I gave him a list of his albums that he owned that I wanted him to make cassette tapes for me. And so just off the top of my head, it was a lot of stuff like – Def Leppard and uh, Aerosmith and Deep Purple. I mean, the list goes on and on. But for me to go to a store and buy, I can't tell you what my first one was, but some of my very first ones were uh, Iron Maiden, Peace of Mind, and Number of the Beast. And those are their two best and just amazing and got me into the heavier stuff and I haven't slowed down since. Nice. I wish I had such a cool story. I was one of six kids, and it was just out of the question to have money to be able to afford cassettes, albums, anything like that. But uh, like Aaron, I had a paper route, and I saved up some money. And I had my brother, who worked at the mall, get this album for me because I was turned on to them by MTV. And uh, Sean, we've seen Slayer and Anthrax. We've seen Metallica. We've seen Stained, Disturbed, Foo Fighters. We've seen hundreds of concerts together, yet... I'm 50, and everywhere I've lived since 1984 when I was in eighth grade, the reason I had him get the album was because the big art project in eighth grade at the Catholic school I went to was you could bring in any album. And the last four Fridays of the school year of eighth grade before we go to high school, you draw it. And, and I wish I had kept that, but I brought in the album, and it was based off of someone else's artwork. And I actually still to this day have it. And it is Duran Duran Rio. Rio. This oh, is yeah. the album that I had my brother mm -hmm. buy at the mall in 1984, and I've not taken it out and played it on a record player in years. I have uh, I have that T-shirt. Yep. That's some artist that's yeah. – if you go into any nightclub to buy cocaine in the 80s, like one of that guy's pictures is there. Absolutely. Seeing that thing makes me want to rip some rails. That's crazy. Okay. Kidding. <laughs> Question number two. <laughs> What one song transports you back to the 80s in your youth? Now, let me clarify. Doesn't mean what's your favorite song of the 80s from your favorite band. I, it, it could be what song just is ingrained in you. And, and, and in my case, it's not even a song that I want to be my favorite song. But the minute I hear the first beat of it, I'm immediately 16 years old again, whether I want to be in art. And again, it's not my favorite band. It's not my favorite artist. It's not even my favorite video. But everything that Chris DeGray was in the 80s comes back to me if I'm in the car, if I'm at a fair, if they're playing it before bands coming on. And that's Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds. Just Absolutely. brings everything back to me. Nice. Aaron? Killer track. For me, it's a cutting crew. Just died in your arms tonight. Just like that. Uh, there's no a, there's a, there, there, I hear that, and it's, there's a specific, 
time, place, and a, a thing I was doing. Sean. Yeah, those are both good choices because they – just hearing you guys say those bring me back. So <clears throat> a lot of these questions uh, I was not privy to before we started talking. And I didn't even find out about this one until probably about 6 o'clock this morning. So, you know, half a day ago or less. And uh, I'm pissed at Chris right now. I hate his guts because he ruined my life. Because to ask me for one song and I can only give one answer of what brings me back to my teens or the 80s, in the middle of the 80s, off the top of my head without even giving it any effort, I literally could probably flirt with about 40 songs right now. But I believe in sticking to it because whenever you post these things asking people for one answer, you always got the one douchebag who puts up 11 things. I'm going to single it down to one because I was asked to, but my answer changes every half hour. And the one that I'm going to pick is We're Not Going to Take It by Twisted Sister. And I'll give you the specific place it brings me. I'm an asshole. And what I mean by that is school was really easy for me. And people hate me when I tell them that, but it's the truth. I could just sit there and half-ass it and ace every test that was ever put in front of me with almost no effort. I was taking trigonometry in 11th grade and had the highest grade in the school. But I also had a mullet and I partied and I loved Motley Crue and I loved Rat and I just wanted to hang around with all the burnouts because we liked the same music and we went to the same parties. So now I'm in trigonometry with all the brainiacs in school, and I hear about this rumblings of a sit-in protest in our high school. And the reason for the protest is they're going to take away senior rights next year, which all that meant was we had our own break room where we could eat and drink and hang out during study hall instead of having to go to the classroom. But we had to pretend we were all upset about it. So I found out about the sit-in. I skipped trigonometry, went down to the sit-in, and there was hundreds of us down there. And this one guy lifted a boombox over his head and pressed play. Say anything, moment. Twisted sister, (laughs) we're not going to take it. And I finally felt like I was cool. And that's when I came up with my reason of what I could rebel against. And I remember the teacher docked me and uh, and took a bunch of points off my average, and I didn't give a shit because I got to hang out with the cool kids for an hour. So, yeah, Twisted Sister, we're not going to take it. Nice. All right, our final question before we wrap up this episode. I'm going to warn you it's going to be tough, and I'm going to put you guys on the spot. Let me set up the scenario. It's between January 1st, 1980, and December 31st, 1989, so sometime within the 80s. Doesn't matter if you pick 1982, 1987, whatever year you're picking in your head, you're 18 years old. You have no obligations. You're not going to college. You get to go be a roadie for one band for five years, which is probably the equivalent of being able to be on tours for two different albums. I don't want to know the albums. I don't want to know the years. I just want a a one band name answer. Who would you want to go and and live that whole lifestyle in the backstage and be around them for five years during the 80s? And again, whether you pick January of 1980 or it doesn't matter. When you pick it, you're talking about you being 18 years old and getting to spend the next five years of your life around this band every single day and all their adventures and, and everything they do. I'll go first because I knew the question. Van Halen, I'll dial it in. 
it would have been amazing to have been on the 1984 and 5150 albums, but my answer is Van Halen. I'm going to have to go with Van Halen. Well, Van Halen then. Aaron now would say Motley Crue because those guys were vicious partiers. Well, that would make Aaron now dead. (laughs) Pretty much. And so we're grateful. My answer is going to be Metallica. And the reason I say that is because of cheese pizza. Let me explain. Cheese pizza is the one food on the planet that if I ate a giant cheese pizza seven nights a week for the next four and a half years, the next day I would be craving cheese pizza. So if I'm going to be a roadie for a band and I'm going to be at the shows and listening to the music and I heard Metallica seven nights a week for the next four and a half years, the next day I would be very, very eager to hear Metallica live. Not a wrong answer. No. So that wraps up this episode. Aaron, thank you so much. Again, how can people find you if they want to listen to your music or see you? I, uh, I front the band Max Tone, M-A-X-X-T-O-N-E. And if uh, we ever get to play for you kind folks in the near future, uh, everything's posted on our Facebook. Uh, my personal music pa- Facebook page is uh, the Notorious Aaron Fay. And there's all kinds of nostalgic pictures of, and, and great... Uh, and great clips from my 30 years plus in, in this business. Last name F-A-Y? F-A-Y, yeah. Okay. Notorious Aaron Fett. All right. I can already tell you, we're, you know, we cover sports, music, life, comedy. Um, plan on coming back. You were a great guest to have. I had a great time. You guys nailed it. I love to talk. To hell with singing. We'll talk. Nice. Great. We all do. <laughs> Thanks again, and that's enough for today. We'll talk to you guys soon.